Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 11 of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 11 The Captain Knuckles Under Alan and I sat down to breakfast about six of the clock. The floor was covered with broken glass and in a horrid mess of blood, which took away my hunger. In all other ways we were in a situation not only agreeable but merry, having ousted the officers from their own cabin, and having at command all the drink in the ship, both wine and spirits, and all the dainty part of what was eatable, such as the pickles and the fine sort of bread. This of itself was enough to set us in good humour, but the richest part of it was this, that the two thirstiest men that ever came out of Scotland, Mr. Shuan being dead, were now shut in the fore part of the ship, and condemned to what they hated most, cold water. "'And depend upon it,' Alan said, "'we shall hear more of them ere long. You may keep a man from the fighting, but never from his bottle.' We made good company for each other. Alan, indeed, expressed himself most lovingly, and taking a knife from the table, cut me off one of the silver buttons from his coat. "'I had them,' says he, from my father, Duncan Stewart, and I'll give you one of them to be a keepsake for last night's work. And wherever you go and show that button, the friends of Alan Breck will come around you." He said this as if he had been Charlemagne, and commanded armies, and indeed, much as I admired his courage, I was always in danger of smiling at his vanity. In danger, I say, for had I not kept my countenance, I would be afraid to think what a quarrel might have followed. As soon as we were through with our meal he rummaged in the captain's locker, till he found a clothes-brush, and then taking off his coat began to visit his suit and brush away the stains, with such care and labour as I supposed to have been only usual with women. To be sure, he had no other, and, besides, as he said, it belonged to a king, and so behooved to be royally looked after. For all that, when I saw what care he took to pluck out the threads where the button had been cut away, I put a higher value on his gift. He was still so engaged when we were hailed by Mr. Riach from the deck, asking for a parley, and I, climbing through the skylight and sitting on the edge of it, pistol in hand and with a bold front, though inwardly in fear of broken glass, hailed him back again and bade him speak out. He came to the edge of the roundhouse, and stood on a coil of rope, so that his chin was on a level with the roof, and we looked at each other a while in silence. Mr. Riach, as I do not think he had been very forward in the battle, so he had got off with nothing worse than a blow upon the cheek, but he looked out of heart, and very weary, having been all night afoot, 
either standing watch or doctoring the wounded. "'This is a bad job,' said he at last, shaking his head. "'It was none of our choosing,' said I. "'A captain,' says he, "'would like to speak with your friend. They might speak at the window.' "'And how do we know what treachery he means?' cried I. "'He means none, David,' returned Mr. Riach. "'And if he did, I'll tell you the honest truth. We couldn't get the men to follow.' "'Is that so?' said I. "'I'll tell you more than that,' said he. "'It's not only the men. It's me. I'm fritchened, Davy.' And he smiled across at me. "'No,' he continued, "'what we want is to be shut of him.' Thereupon I consulted with Alan, and the parley was agreed to and parole given upon either side, but this was not the whole of Mr. Riach's business, and he now begged me for a dram with such instancy and such reminders of his former kindness that at last I handed him a pannikin with about half a gill of brandy. He drank a part, and then carried the rest down upon the deck, to share it, I suppose, with his superior. A little after the captain came, as was agreed to one of the windows, and stood there in the rain, with his arm in a sling, and looking stern and pale, and so old that my heart smote me for having fired upon him. Alan at once held a pistol in his face. "'Put that thing up,' said the captain. "'Have I not passed my word, sir, or do you seek to affront me?' "'Captain,' says Alan, "'I doubt your word is a breakable.' Last night you haggled and argle-bargled like an apple-wife, and then passed me your word, and gave me your hand to back it, and you ken very well what was the upshot. Be damned to your word, says he. Well, well, sir, said the captain, you'll get little good by swearing. And truly that was a fault of which the captain was quite free. But we have other things to speak, he continued bitterly. You've made a sore hash of my brig. I haven't hands enough left to work her, and my first officer, whom I could ill spare, has got your swords throughout his vitals and passed without speech. There is nothing left me, sir, but to put back into the port of Glasgow after hands, and there, by your leave, you shall find them that are better able to talk to you. Aye, said Alan, and faith, I'll have a talk with them myself. Unless there's nobody speaks English in that town, I have a bunny tale for them. Fifteen tarry sailors upon the one side, and a man and a halfling boy upon the other. Oh, man, it's pitiful. Hoseason flushed red. No, continued Alan, that'll no do. You'll just have to set me ashore as we agreed. Aye, said Hoseason, but my first officer is dead. You ken best how. There's none of the rest of us acquainted with this coast, sir, and it's one very dangerous to ships. I give you your choice, says Alan. Set me on dry ground in Appen, or Ardgour, or in Morven, or Erisseg, or Morar, or in brief, where you please, within thirty miles of my own country, except in a country of the Campbells. That's a broad target. If you miss that, you must be as feckless at the sailoring as I have found ye at the fighting. Why, my poor country people in their bit cobbles pass from island to island in all weathers, ay, and by night too, for the matter of that. 
"'A cobble's not a ship, sir,' said the captain. "'It is no draught of water.' "'Well, then, to Glasgow, if ye list,' says Alan. "'We'll have the laugh o' ye at the least.' "'My mind runs little upon laughing,' said the captain. "'But all this will cost money, sir.' "'Well, sir,' says Alan, "'I am no weather cock.' Thirty guineas if you land me on the seaside, and sixty if you put me in the linny lock. But see, sir, where we lie. We are but a few hours' sail from Ardenamurchen, says Hoseason. Give me sixty, and I'll set you there. And I'm to wear my brogues and run jeopardy of the redcoats to please you? cries Alan. No, sir. If you want sixty guineas, earn them, and set me in my own country. "'It's to risk the brig, sir,' said the captain, "'and your own lives along with her.' "'Take it or want it,' says Alan. "'Could you pilot us at all?' asked the captain, who was frowning to himself. "'Well, it's doubtful,' said Alan. "'I'm more of a fighting man, as you have seen for yourself, than a sailor-man. But I have been often enough picked up and set down upon this coast, and should ken something of the lie of it.' captain shook his head, still frowning. "'If I had lost less money on this unchancy cruise,' says he, "'I would see you in a rope's end before I risked my brig, sir. But be it as you will. As soon as I get a slant of wind, and there's some coming, or I'm the more mistaken, I'll put it in hand. But there's one thing more. We may meet in with the king's ship, and she may lay us aboard, sir, with no blame of mine.' They keep the cruisers thick upon this coast, ye ken who for. Now, sir, if that was to befall, ye might leave the money. Captain, says Alan, if ye see a pennant, it shall be your part to run away. And now, as I hear you're little short of brandy in the forepart, I'll offer ye a change, a bottle of brandy against two buckets of water. That was the last clause of the treaty, and was duly executed on both sides so that Alan and I could at last wash out the roundhouse and be quit of the memorials of those whom we had slain, and the captain and Mr. Riach could be happy again in their own way, the name of which was Drink. End of chapter Chapter 12 of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 12 I Hear of the Red Fox Before we had done cleaning out the roundhouse, a breeze sprang up from a little to the east of north. This blew off the rain and brought out the sun. And here I must explain, and the reader would do well to look at a map. On the day when the fog fell and we ran down Allen's boat, we had been running through the little minch. At dawn after the battle, we lay becalmed to the east of the Isle of Canna, or between that and Isle Eriska in the chain of the Long Island. Now to get from there to the Linny Lock. The straight course was through the narrows of the Sound of Mull, but the captain had no chart. He was afraid to trust his brig so deep among the islands, 
and the wind serving well he preferred to go by west of Tyree and come up under the southern coast of the great Isle of Mull. All day the breeze held in the same point, and rather freshened than died down, and towards afternoon a swell began to set in from round the outer Hebrides. Our course, to go round about the inner isles, was to the west of south, so that at first we had the swell upon our beam, and were much rolled about. But after nightfall, when we had turned the end of Tyree and began to head more to the east, the sea came right astern. Meanwhile, the early part of the day, before the swell came up, was very pleasant, sailing as we were in a bright sunshine and with many mountainous islands upon different sides. Alan and I sat in the roundhouse with the doors open on each side, the wind being straight astern, and smoked a pipe or two of the captain's fine tobacco. It was at this time we heard each other's stories, which was the more important to me, as I gained some knowledge of that wild highland country on which I was so soon to land. In those days, so close on the back of the great rebellion, it was needful a man should know what he was doing when he went upon the heather. It was I that showed the example, telling him all my misfortune, which he heard with great good nature. Only when I came to mention that good friend of mine, Mr. Campbell the minister, Alan fired up and cried out that he hated all that were of that name. Why, said I, he is a man you should be proud to give your hand to. I know nothing I would help a Campbell to, says he, unless it was a leaden bullet. I would hunt all of that name like black cocks. If I lay dying I would crawl upon my knees to my chamber window for a shot at one. Why, Alan, I cried, what ails ye at the Campbells? Well, says he, ye ken very well that I am an appin Stuart, and the Campbells have long harried and wasted those of my name, ay, and got lands of us by treachery, but never with the sword, he cried loudly, and with the word brought down his fist upon the table. But I paid the less attention to this, for I knew it was usually said by those who have the underhand. There's more than that, he continued, and all in the same story lying words, lying papers, tricks fit for a peddler, and the show of what's legal over all, to make a man the more angry. "'You are so wasteful of your buttons,' said I, "'I can hardly think you would be a good judge of business.' "'Ah!' says he, falling again to smiling. "'I got my wastefulness from the same man I got the buttons from, and that was my poor father, Duncan Stewart, grace be to him.' He was the prettiest man of his kindred, and the best swordsman in the highlands, David, and that is the same as to say, in all the world, I should ken, for it was him that taught me. He was in the black watch, when first it was mustered, and like other gentlemen privates had a gilly at his back to carry his firelock for him on the march. Well, the king, it appears, was wishful to see highland swordsmanship, and my father and three more were chosen out and sent to London town to let him see it at the best. So they were had into the palace, and showed the whole art of the sword for two hours at a stretch, before King George and Queen Carline, and the Butcher Cumberland, and many more of whom I have no mind. And when they were through, the King, for all he was a rank usurper, 
spoke them fair, and gave each man three guineas in his hand. Now, as they were going out of the palace, they had a porter's lodge to go by, and it came in on my father, as he was perhaps the first private Highland gentleman that had ever gone by that door. It was right he should give the poor porter a proper notion of their quality. So he gives the king's three guineas into the man's hand, as if it was his common custom. The three others that came behind him did the same, and there they were on the street, never a penny the better for their pains. Some say it was one that was the first to fee the king's porter, and some say it was another. But the truth of it is that it was Duncan Stuart, as I am willing to prove with either sword or pistol, and that was the father I had. God rest him. I think he was not the man to leave you rich, said I. And that's true, said Alan. He left me my breeks to cover me, and little besides. And that was how I came to enlist, which was a black spot upon my character at the best of times, and would still be a sore job for me if I fell among the redcoats. What? cried I. Were you in the English army? That was I, said Alan. But I deserted to the right side at Preston Pans, and that's some comfort. I could scarcely share this view, holding desertion under arms for an unpardonable fault in honour. But for all I was so young, I was wiser than say my thought. Dear, dear, says I, the punishment is death. Aye, said he, if they got the hands on me, it would be a short shrift and a long tow for Alan. But I have the King of France's commission in my pocket, which would I be some protection. I misdoubt it much, said I. I have doubts myself, said Alan dryly. And good heaven, man, cried I, you that are a condemned rebel, and a deserter, and a man of the French kings, what tempts you back into this country? It's a braving of providence. Tut, says Alan, I have been back every year since forty-six. And what brings you, man? cried I. "'Well, you see, I weary for my friends and country,' said he. "'France is a broad place, no doubt, but I weary for the heather and the deer. And then I have bit things that I attend to. Whilst I pick up a few lads to serve the King of France, recruits, you see, and that's I a little money. But the heart of the matter is the business of my chief, Ardshiel.' "'I thought they called your chief Appen,' said I. Aye, but Ardshiel is the captain of the clan, said he, which scarcely cleared my mind. You see, David, he that was all his life so great a man, and come of the blood in bearing the name of kings, is now brought down to live in a French town like a poor and private person. He that had four hundred swords at his whistle, I have seen, with these eyes of mine, buying butter in the market-place, and taking it home in a kale-leaf. This is not only a pain, but a disgrace to us of his family and clan. There are the barns forby, the children and the hope of Appen, that must be learned their letters and how to hold a sword in that far country. Now, the tenants of Appen have to pay a rent to King George, but their hearts are staunch, they are true to their chief, and what with love and a bit of pressure, and maybe a threat or two, the poor folk scrape up a second rent for Ardshiel. Well, David, I'm the hand that carries it. 
and he struck the belt about his body, so that the guineas rang. "'Do they pay both?' cried I. "'Aye, David, both,' says he. "'What, two rents?' I repeated. "'Aye, David,' said he. "'I told a different tale to young Captain Man, but this is the truth of it, and it's wonderful to me how little pressure is needed. But that's the handiwork of my good kinsman and my father's friend, James of the Glens, James Stuart, that is, Ardshiel's half-brother. He it is that gets the money in, and does the management.' This was the first time I heard the name of that James Stewart, who was afterwards so famous at the time of his hanging. But I took little heed at the moment, for all my mind was occupied with the generosity of these poor Highlanders. "'I call it noble!' I cried. "'I'm a Whig, or little better, but I call it noble!' "'Aye,' said he, "'you're a Whig, but you're a gentleman, and that's what does it.' Now, if you were one of the cursed race of Campbell, you would gnash your teeth to hear tell of it. If you were the Red Fox, and at that name his teeth shut together, and he ceased speaking, I've seen many a grim face, but never a grimmer than Alan's when he had named the Red Fox. "'And who is the Red Fox?' I asked, daunted but still curious. "'Who is he?' cried Alan. "'Well, and I tell you that!' When the men of the clans were broken at Culloden, and the good cause went down, and the horses rode over the fetlocks in the best blood of the north, Ardshiel had to flee like a poor deer upon the mountains, he and his lady and his bairns. A sad job we had of it before we got him shipped, and while he still lay in the heather, the English rogues, that couldn't come at his life, were striking at his rights. They stripped him of his powers, they stripped him of his lands, they plucked the weapons from the hands of his clansmen, that had borne arms for thirty centuries, aye, and the very clothes off their backs, so that it's now a sin to wear a tartan plaid, and a man may be cast into a jail if he has but a kilt about his legs. One thing they couldn't kill, that was the love the clansmen bore their chief. These guineas are the proof of it. And now, in there steps a man, a Campbell, red-headed Colin of Glenure. "'Is that him you call the Red Fox?' said I. "'Will you bring me his brush?' cried Alan, fiercely. "'Aye, that's the man. In he steps, and gets papers from King George, to be so-called King's Factor on the lands of Appen. And at first he sings small, and his hail-fellow well met with Seamus. That's James of the Glens, my chieftain's agent. But by the by, that came to his ears that I have just told you, how the poor commons of Appen, the farmers and the crofters and the bowmen, were wringing their very plaids to get a second rent, and send it overseas for Ardshiel and his poor bairns. What was it you called it, when I told you? I called it noble, Alan, said I. I knew little better than a common wig, cries Alan. And when it came to Colin Roy, the black Campbell blood in him ran wild. He sat gnashing his teeth at the wine-table. What! Should a Stuart get a bite of bread, and him not be able to prevent it? Ha! Red Fox, if ever I hold you at a gun's end, the Lord have pity upon ye. Alan stopped to swallow down his anger. Well, David, what does he do? 
he declares all the farms to let, and, thinks he in his black heart, I'll soon get other tenants that are overbid these Stuarts, and Maccalls, and Maccrubs, for these are all names in my clan, David. And then, thinks he, Ardshiel will have to hold his bonnet on a French roadside. Well, said I, what followed? Alan laid down his pipe, which he had long since suffered to go out, and set his two hands upon his knees. Aye, said he, you never guessed that, for these same Stuarts and Maccalls and Maccrubs, that had two rents to pay, one to King George by stark force, and one to Ardshiel by natural kindness, offered him a better price than any Campbell in all broad Scotland, and far he sent seeking them, as far as to the sides of Clyde and the Cross of Edinburgh, seeking and fleeching and begging them to come, where there was a Stuart to be starved and a red-headed hound of a Campbell to be pleasured. "'Well, Alan,' said I, "'that is a strange story, and a fine one, too. And whig as I may be, I am glad the man was beaten.' "'Him beaten?' echoed Alan. "'It's little ye ken of Campbell's, and less of the red fox. Him beaten? No, nor will be, till his blood's on the hillside. But if the day comes, David man, that I can find time and leisure for a bit of hunting, there grows not enough heather in all Scotland to hide him from my vengeance. Man, Alan, said I, you are neither very wise nor very Christian to blow off so many words of anger. They will do the man you call the fox no harm, and yourself no good. Tell me your tale plainly out. What did he next? "'And that's a good observe, David,' said Alan. "'Trothen, indeed, they will do him no harm, the more's the pity. And barring that about Christianity, of which my opinion is quite otherwise, or I would be no Christian, I am much of your mind.' "'Opinion here, or, or opinion there,' said I, "'it's a Kent thing that Christianity forbids revenge.' "'Aye,' said he, it's well seen it was a Campbell taught ye. It would be a convenient world for them and their sort, if there were no such thing as a lad and a gun behind a heather bush. But that's nothing to the point. This is what he did. Aye, said I, come to that. Well, David, said he, since he couldna be rid of the loyal commons by fair means, he swore he would be rid of them by foul. Ardshiel was to starve. That was the thing he aimed at. And since them that fed him in his exile would not be brought out, right or wrong, he would drive them out. Therefore he sent for lawyers, and papers, and redcoats to stand at his back. And the kindly folk of that country must all pack and trap every father's son out of his father's house, and out of the place where he was bred and fed, and played when he was a callant. And who are to succeed them? bare-legged beggars. King George is to whistle for his rents. He maun do with less. He can spread his butter thinner. What cares Red Colin? If he can hurt Ardshiel, he has his wish. If he can pluck the meat from my chieftain's table, and the bit toys out of his children's hands, he will gang home singing to Glenure. Let me have a word, said I. Be sure, if they take less rents, be sure government has a finger in the pie. It's not this Campbell's fault, man. It's his orders. And if you killed this Colin to-morrow, 
what better would you be? There would be another factor in his shoes, as fast as Spur can drive. "'You're a good lad at a fight,' said Alan. "'But, man, you have Whig blood in you.' He spoke kindly enough, but there was so much anger under his contempt that I thought it was wise to change the conversation. I expressed my wonder how, with the highlands covered with troops, and guarded like a city in a siege, a man in his situation could come and go without arrest. "'It's easier than you would think,' said Alan. "'A bare hillside, you see, is like all one road. If there's a sentry at one place you'd just go by another and then the heather's a great help. And everywhere there are friends' houses and friends' byres and haystacks. And besides, when folk talk of a country covered with troops, it's but a kind of a byword at the best. A soldier covers no more of it than his boot-soles. I have fished the water with a sentry on the other side of the bray, and killed a fine trout, and I have sat in the heather-bush within six feet of another, and learned a real bonny tune from his whistling. This was it! said he, and whistled me the air. "'And then, besides,' he continued, "'it's no so bad now as it was in forty-six. The highlands are what they call pacified. Small wonder, with never a gun or a sword left from Kentire to Cape Wrath, but what tenty folk have hidden in the thatch. But what I would like to ken, David, is just how long—not long, you would think, with men like Hardshiel in exile, and men like the Red Fox sitting burling the wine and oppressing the poor at home. But it's a kittle thing to decide what folks'll bear, and what they will not. And why would Red Colin be riding his horse all over my poor country of Appen, and never a pretty lad to put a bullet in him?" And with this Alan fell into a muse, and for a long time sat very sad and silent. I will add the rest of what I have to say about my friend, that he was skilled in all kinds of music, but principally pipe music, was a well-considered poet in his own tongue, had read several books both in French and English, was a dead shot, a good angler, and an excellent fencer with the small sword, as well as with his own particular weapon. For his faults they were on his face, and I now knew them all. But the worst of them, his childish propensity to take offence and to pick quarrels, he greatly laid aside in my case, out of regard for the battle of the roundhouse. But whether it was because I had done well myself, or because I had been a witness of his own much greater prowess, is more than I can tell. For though he had a great taste for courage in other men, yet he admired it most in Alan Breck. End of chapter Chapter Thirteen of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Thirteen The Loss of the Brig. It was already late at night and as dark as ever would be at that season of the year, and that is to say it was still pretty bright, when Hoseason clapped his head into the roundhouse door. "'Here,' said he, "'come out and see if you can pilot.' "'Is this one of your tricks?' asked Alan. "'Do I look like tricks?' cries the captain. 
I have other things to think of. My brig's in danger. By the concerned look of his face, and above all by the sharp tones in which he spoke of his brig, it was plain to both of us he was in deadly earnest, and so Alan and I, with no great fear of treachery, stepped on deck. The sky was clear, it blew hard, and it was bitter cold. A great deal of daylight lingered, and the moon, which was nearly full, shone brightly. The brig was close-hauled, so as to round the southwest corner of the island of Mull, the hills of which, and Ben Moore above them all, with a wisp of mist upon the top of it, lay full upon the larboard bow. Though it was no good point of sailing for the Covenant, she tore through the seas at a great rate, pitching and straining, and pursued by the westerly swell. Altogether it was no such ill night to keep the seas in, and I had begun to wonder what it was that sat so heavily upon the captain, when the brig, rising suddenly on the top of a high swell, he pointed and cried to us to look. Away on the lee bow, a thing like a fountain rose out of the moonlit sea, and immediately after we heard a low sound of roaring. "'What do you call that?' asked the captain, gloomily. "'The sea breaking on a reef,' said Alan. "'And now you ken where it is, and what better would you have?' "'Aye,' said Hoseason, "'if it was the only one.' And sure enough, just as he spoke, there came a second fountain farther to the south. "'There,' said Hoseason, "'you see for yourself. If I had kent of these reefs, if I had had a chart, or if Shuan had been spared, it's not sixty guineas, no, nor six hundred, would have made me risk my brig in such a stone-yard. And you, sir, that was to pilot us, have ye never a word. I'm thinking, said Alan, that these will be what they call the Torin rocks. Are there many of them? says the captain. Truly, sir, I am no pilot, said Alan but it sticks in my mind there are ten miles of them." Mr. Riach and the captain looked at each other. "'There's a way through them, I suppose,' said the captain. "'Doubtless,' said Alan. "'But where?' "'But it somehow runs in my mind once more that it is clearer under the land.' "'So,' said Hoseason, "'we'll have to haul our wind, then, Mr. Riach. We'll have to come as near in about the end of Mull as we can take her, sir and even then we'll have the land to keep the wind off us, and that stone-yard on our lee. Well, we're in for it now, and may as well crack on." With that he gave an order to the steersman, and sent Riach to the foretop. There were only five men on deck, counting the officers, these being all that were fit, or at least both fit and willing, for their work. So, as I said, it fell to Mr. Riach to go aloft and he sat there looking out and hailing the deck with news of all he saw. "'The sea to the south is thick,' he cried. And then, after a while, "'It does seem clearer in by the land.' "'Well, sir,' said Hoseas and Alan, "'we'll try your way of it. But I think I might as well trust to a blind fiddler. Pray God you're right.' "'Pray God I am,' said Alan to me. "'But where did I hear it?' Well, well, it will be as it must. As we got nearer to the turn of the land, the reefs began to be sown here and there on our very path. Mr. Riach sometimes cried down to us to change the course. Sometimes, indeed, none too soon, for one reef was so close on the brig's weatherboard 
that when a sea burst upon it the lighter sprays fell upon her deck and wetted us like rain. The brightness of the night showed us these perils as clearly as by day, which was perhaps the more alarming. It showed me, too, the face of the captain as he stood by the steersman, now on one foot, now on the other, and sometimes blowing in his hands, but still listening and looking, and as steady as steel. Neither he nor Mr. Riach had shown well in the fighting, but I saw they were brave in their own trade, and admired them all the more because I found Alan very white. "'Achon, David,' says he, "'this is no the kind of death I fancy.' "'What, Alan?' I cried. "'You're not afraid?' "'No,' said he, wetting his lips. "'But you'll allow yourself it's a cold ending.' By this time, now and then shearing to one side or the other to avoid a reef, but still hugging the wind and the land, we had got round Iona and begun to come alongside Mull. The tide at the tail of the land ran very strong, and threw the brig about. Two hands were put to the helm, and Hoseism himself would sometimes lend a help, and it was strange to see three strong men throw their weight upon the tiller, and it, like a living thing, struggle against and drive them back. This would have been the greater danger had not the sea been for some while free of obstacles. Mr. Riach, besides, announced from the top that he saw clear water ahead. "'You are right,' said Hoseason to Alan. "'You have saved the brig, sir. I'll mind that when we come to clear accounts.' And I believe he not only meant what he said, but he would have done it, so high a place did the covenant hold in his affections. But this is matter only for conjecture, things having gone otherwise than he forecast. "'Keep her away a point,' sings out Mr. Riach. "'Reef to windward!' and just at the same time the tide caught the brig, and threw the wind out of her sails. She came to round into the wind like a top, and the next moment struck the reef with such a crunch as threw us all flat upon the deck, and came near to shake Mr. Riach from his place upon the mast. I was on my feet in a minute. The reef on which we had struck was close in under the southwest end of Mull, off a little isle they call Ehraid, which lay low and black upon the larboard. Sometimes the swell broke clean over us, sometimes it only ground the poor brig upon the reef, so that we could hear her beat herself to pieces, and what with the great noise of the sails, and the singing of the wind, and the flying of the spray in the moonlight, and the sense of danger, I think my head must have been partly turned, for I could scarcely understand the things I saw. Presently I observed Mr. Riach and the seamen busy round the skiff and still in the same blank, ran over to assist them, and as soon as I set my hand to work, my mind came clear again. It was no very easy task, for the skiff lay amidships and was full of hamper, and the breaking of the heavier seas continually forced us to give over and hold on, but we all wrought like horses while we could. Meanwhile such of the wounded as could move came clambering out of the fore-scuttle and began to help while the rest that lay helpless in their bunks harrowed me with screaming and begging to be saved. The captain took no part. It seemed he was struck stupid. He stood holding by the shrouds, talking to himself and groaning out aloud whenever the ship hammered on the rock. His brig was like wife and child to him. He had looked on day by day at the mishandling of poor Ransom, but when it came to the brig 
he seemed to suffer along with her. All the time of our working at the boat, I remember only one other thing that I asked Alan, looking across at the shore, what country it was, and he answered, it was the worst possible for him, it was the land of the Campbells. We had one of the wounded men told off to keep a watch upon the seas and cry us warning. Well, we had the boat about ready to be launched, when this man sang out pretty shrill, "'For God's sake, hold on!' We knew by his tone that it was something more than ordinary, and sure enough, there followed a sea so huge that it lifted the brig right up and canted her over on her beam. Whether the cry came too late, or my hold was too weak, I know not, but at the sudden tilting of the ship I was cast clean over the bulwarks into the sea. I went down and drank my fill, and then came up, and got a blink of the moon, and then down again. They say a man sinks a third time for good. I cannot be made like other folk then, for I would not like to write how often I went down, or how often I came up again. All the while I was being hurled along, and beaten upon and choked, and then swallowed whole, and the thing was so distracting to my wits that I was neither sorry nor afraid. Presently I found I was holding to a spar, which helped me somewhat, and then all of a sudden I was in quiet water, and began to come to myself. It was the spare yard I had got hold of, and I was amazed to see how far I had travelled from the brig. I hailed her, indeed, but it was plain she was already out of cry. She was still holding together, but whether or not they had yet launched the boat, it was too far off and too low down to see. While I was hailing the brig, I spied a tract of water lying between us where no great waves came, but which yet boiled white all over and bristled in the moon with rings and bubbles. Sometimes the whole tract swung to one side like the tail of a live serpent. Sometimes for a glimpse it would all disappear and then boil up again. What it was I had no guess, which for the time increased my fear of it, but I now know it must have been the roost or tide race which had carried me away so fast and tumbled me about so cruelly, and at last, as if tired of that play, had flung out me in the spare yard upon its landward margin. I now lay quite becalmed, and began to feel that a man can die of cold as well as of drowning. The shores of Herod were close in. I could see in the moonlight the dots of heather and the sparkling of the mica in the rocks. Well, thought I to myself, if I cannot get as far as that, it's strange. I had no skill of swimming, S and water being small in our neighbourhood, but when I laid hold upon the yard with both arms, and kicked out with both feet, I soon begun to find that I was moving. Hard work it was, and mortally slow, but in about an hour of kicking and splashing I had got well in between the points of a sandy bay surrounded by low hills. The sea was here quite quiet, there was no sound of any surf, the moon shone clear, and I thought in my heart I had never seen a place so desert and desolate. But it was dry land, and when at last it grew so shallow that I could leave the yard and wade ashore upon my feet, I cannot tell if I was more tired or more grateful. Both, at least, I was, tired as I never was before that night, and grateful to God as I trust I have been often though never with more cause. End of chapter
Chapter Fourteen of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Fourteen The Islet. With my stepping ashore I began the most unhappy part of my adventures. It was half-past twelve in the morning, and though the wind was broken by the land, it was a cold night. I dared not sit down, for I thought I should have frozen, but I took off my shoes and walked to and fro upon the sand, barefoot, and beating my breast with infinite weariness. There was no sound of man or cattle, not a cock crew, though it was about the hour of their first waking. Only the surf broke outside in the distance, which put me in mind of my perils and those of my friend. To walk by the sea at that hour of the morning, and in a place so desert-like and lonesome, struck me with a kind of fear. As soon as the day began to break I put on my shoes and climbed a hill, the ruggedest scramble I ever undertook, falling the whole way between big blocks of granite, or leaping from one to another. When I got to the top the dawn was come. There was no sign of the brig which must have lifted from the reef and sunk. The boat, too, was nowhere to be seen. There was never a sail upon the ocean, and in what I could see of the land was neither house nor man. I was afraid to think what had befallen my shipmates, and afraid to look longer at so empty a scene. What with my wet clothes and weariness, and my belly that now began to ache with hunger, I had enough to trouble me without that. So I set off eastward along the south coast, hoping to find a house where I might warm myself, and perhaps get news of those I had lost. And at the worst I considered the sun would soon rise and dry my clothes. After a little my way was stopped by a creek or inlet of the sea, which seemed to run pretty deep into the land, and as I had no means to get across I must needs change my direction to go around the end of it. It was still the roughest kind of walking, indeed the whole, not only of Herod, but of the neighbouring part of Mull, which they call the Ross, is nothing but a jumble of granite rocks with heather in among. At first the creek kept narrowing, as I had looked to see, but presently to my surprise it began to widen out again. At this I scratched my head, but had still no notion of the truth, until at last I came to a rising ground and it burst upon me all in a moment that I was cast upon a little barren isle, and cut off on every side by the salt seas. Indeed, as instead of the sun rising to dry me, it came on to rain, with a thick mist, so that my case was lamentable. I stood in the rain and shivered, and wondered what to do, till it occurred to me that perhaps the creek was fordable. Back I went to the narrowest point, and waded in, but not three yards from shore I plumped in head over ears, and if ever I was heard of more it was rather by God's grace than my own prudence. I was no wetter, for that could hardly be, but I was all the colder for this mishap, and having lost another hope was the more unhappy. And now all at once the yard came in my head. What had carried me through the roost would surely serve me to cross this little quiet creek in safety. With that I set off, undaunted, across the top of the isle, to fetch and carry it back. 
It was a weary tramp in all ways, and if hope had not buoyed me up, I must have cast myself down and given up. Whether with the sea salt or because I was growing fevered, I was distressed with thirst, and had to stop as I went and drink the peaty water out of the hags. I came to the bay at last, more dead than alive, and at the first glance I thought the yard was something farther out than when I left it. In I went, for the third time, into the sea. The sand was smooth and firm, and shelved gradually down, so that I could wade out till the water was almost to my neck, and little waves splashed into my face. But at that depth my feet began to leave me, and I durst venture in no farther. As for the yard, I saw it bobbing very quietly some twenty feet beyond. I had borne up well until this last disappointment, but at that I came ashore and flung myself down upon the sands and wept. The time I spent upon the island is still so horrible a thought to me that I must pass it lightly over. In all the books I have read of people cast away, they had either their pockets full of tools or a chest of things which would be thrown upon the beach along with them, as if on purpose. My case was very different. I had nothing in my pockets but money and Alan's silver button, and being inland-bred, I was as much short of knowledge as of means. I knew indeed that shellfish were counted good to eat, and among the rocks of the isle I found a great plenty of limpets, which at first I could hardly strike from their places, not knowing quickness to be needful. There were, besides, some of the little shells that we call buckies, I think periwinkle is the English name. Of these two I made my whole diet, devouring them cold and raw as I found them and so hungry was I that at first they seemed to me delicious. Perhaps they were out of season, or perhaps there was something wrong in the sea about my island. But at least I had no sooner eaten my first meal than I was seized with giddiness and retching, and lay for a long time no better than dead. A second trial of the same food—indeed I had no other—did better with me, and revived my strength. But as long as I was on the island, I never knew what to expect when I had eaten. Sometimes all was well, and sometimes I was thrown into a miserable sickness, nor could I ever distinguish what particular fish it was that hurt me. All day it streamed rain. The island ran like a sop. There was no dry spot to be found, and when I lay down that night, between two boulders that made a kind of roof, my feet were in a bog. The second day I crossed the island to all sides. There was no one part of it better than another. It was all desolate and rocky, nothing living on it but game birds which I lacked the means to kill, and gulls which haunted the outlying rocks in a prodigious number. But the creek, or strait, that cut off the isle from the mainland of the Ross, opened out on the north into a bay, and the bay again opened into the sound of Iona and it was the neighbourhood of this place that I chose to be my home, though if I had thought upon the very name of home in such a spot, I must have burst out weeping. I had good reasons for my choice. There was in this part of the isle a little hut of a house like a pig's hut, where fishers used to sleep when they came there upon their business, but the turf roof of it had fallen entirely in, so that the hut was of no use to me, and gave me less shelter than my rocks. What was more important, the shellfish on which I lived grew there in great plenty. When the tide was out I could gather a peck at a time, and this was doubtless a convenience. 
but the other reason went deeper. I had become in no way used to the horrid solitude of the isle, but still looked round me on all sides, like a man that was hunted, between fear and hope that I might see some human creature coming. Now, from a little up the hillside over the bay, I could catch a sight of the great ancient church and the roofs of the people's houses in Iona. And on the other hand, over the low country of the Ross, I saw smoke go up, morning and evening, as if from a homestead in the hollow of the land. I used to watch this smoke when I was wet and cold, and had my head half turned with loneliness, and I think of the fireside and the company, till my heart burned. It was the same with the roofs of Iona. Altogether, this sight I had of men's homes and comfortable lives, although it put a point on my own sufferings, yet it kept hope alive, and helped me to eat my raw shellfish, which had soon grown to be a disgust, and saved me from the sense of horror I had whenever I was quite alone with dead rocks and fowls and the rain and the cold sea. I say it kept hope alive, and indeed it seemed impossible that I should be left to die on the shores of my own country, and within view of a church-tower and the smoke of men's houses. But the second day passed, and though as long as the light lasted I kept a bright lookout for boats on the sound, or men passing on the Ross, no help came near me. It still rained, and I turned into sleep as wet as ever, and with a cruel sore throat, but a little comforted, perhaps, by having said good-night to my next neighbours, the people of Iona. Charles II declared a man could stay outdoors more days in the year in the climate of England than in any other. This was very like a king, with a palace at his back and changes of dry clothes, but he must have had better luck on his flight from Worcester than I had in that miserable isle. It was the height of the summer, yet it rained for more than twenty-four hours. It did not clear until the afternoon of the third day. This was the day of incidents. In the morning I saw a red deer, a buck with a fine spread of antlers, standing in the rain on the top of the island, but he had scarce seen me rise from my rock before he trotted off upon the other side. I supposed he must have swum the strait, though what should bring any creature to Arid was more than I could fancy. A little after, as I was jumping about after my limpets, I was startled by a guinea-piece, which fell upon a rock in front of me and glanced off into the sea. When the sailors gave me my money again, they kept back not only about a third of the whole sum, but my father's leather purse, so that from that day out I carried my gold loose in a pocket with a button. I now saw there must be a hole, and clapped my hand to the place in a great hurry but this was to lock the stable-door after the steed was stolen. I had left the shore at Queen's Ferry with near on fifty pounds. Now I found no more than two guinea-pieces and a silver shilling. It is true I picked up a third guinea a little after, where it lay shining on a piece of turf. That made a fortune of three pounds and four shillings English money, for a lad the rightful heir of an estate now starving on an isle at the extreme end of the wild highlands. The state of my affairs dashed me still further, and indeed my plight on that third morning was truly pitiful. My clothes were beginning to rot, my stockings in particular were quite worn through, so that my shanks went naked. My hands had grown quite soft with the continual soaking, my throat was very sore, my strength had much abated, 
and my heart so turned against the horrid stuff I was condemned to eat, that the very sight of it came near to sicken me. And yet the worst was not yet come. There is a pretty high rock on the northwest of Herod, which, because it had a flat top and overlooked the sound, I was much in the habit of frequenting, not that ever I stayed in one place, save when asleep, my misery giving me no rest. Indeed, I wore myself down with continual and aimless goings and comings in the rain. As soon, however, as the sun came out, I lay down on the top of that rock to dry myself. The comfort of the sunshine is a thing I cannot tell. It set me thinking hopefully of my deliverance, of which I had begun to despair, and I scanned the sea and the Ross with a fresh interest. On the south of my rock, a part of the island jutted out and hid the open ocean, so that a boat could thus come quite near me upon that side, and I be none the wiser. Well, all of a sudden, a cobble with a brown sail and a pair of fishers aboard of it came flying round that corner of the isle, bound for Iona. I shouted out, and then fell on my knees on the rock, and reached up my hands, and prayed to them. They were near enough to hear. I could even see the colour of their hair, and there was no doubt but they observed me, for they cried out in the Gaelic tongue, and laughed. But the boat never turned aside, and flew on right before my eyes, for Iona. I could not believe such wickedness, and ran along the shore from rock to rock, crying on them piteously even after they were out of reach of my voice. I still cried and waved to them, and when they were quite gone, I thought my heart would have burst. All the time of my troubles I wept only twice, once when I could not reach the yard, and now the second time, when these fishers turned a deaf ear to my cries. But this time I wept and roared like a wicked child, tearing up the turf with my nails, and grinding my face in the earth. If a wish would kill men, those two fishers would never have seen morning, and I should likely have died upon my island. When I was a little over my anger, I must eat again, but with such loathing of the mess as I could now scarce control. Sure enough, I should have done as well to fast, for my fishes poisoned me again. I had all my first pains, my throat was so sore I could scarce swallow, I had a fit of strong shuddering, which clucked my teeth together, and there came on me that dreadful sense of illness which we have no name for either in Scotch or English. I thought I should have died, and made my peace with God, forgiving all men, even my uncle and the fishers, and as soon as I had thus made up my mind to the worst, clearness came upon me. I observed the night was falling dry. My clothes were dried a good deal. Truly, I was in a better case than ever before, since I had landed on the isle, and so I got to sleep at last, with a thought of gratitude. The next day, which was the fourth of this horrible life of mine, I found my bodily strength run very low. But the sun shone, the air was sweet, and what I managed to eat of the shellfish agreed well with me, and revived my courage. I was scarce back on my rock, where I went always the first thing after I had eaten, before I observed a boat coming down the sound, and with her head, as I thought, in my direction. I began at once to hope and fear exceedingly, for I thought these men might have thought better of their cruelty in be coming back to my assistance. 
but another disappointment, such as yesterday's, was more than I could bear. I turned my back accordingly upon the sea, and did not look again till I had counted many hundreds. The boat was still heading for the island. The next time I counted the full thousand, as slowly as I could, my heart beating so as to hurt me, and then it was out of all question she was coming straight to Arid. I could no longer hold myself back, but ran to the seaside and out, from one rock to another, as far as I could go. It is a marvel I was not drowned, for when I was brought to a stand at last, my legs shook under me, and my mouth was so dry I must wet it with the sea-water before I was able to shout. All this time the boat was coming on, and now I was able to perceive it was the same boat and the same two men as yesterday. This I knew by their hair, which the one had of a bright yellow and the other black, but now there was a third man along with them, who looked to be of a better class. As soon as they were come within easy speech, they let down their sail and lay quiet. In spite of my supplications they drew no nearer in, and what frightened me most of all, the new man tee-heed with laughter as he talked and looked at me. Then he stood up in the boat and addressed me a long while, speaking fast and with many wavings of his hand. I told him I had no Gaelic, and at this he became very angry, and I began to suspect he thought he was talking English. Listening very close, I caught the word, What heifer? several times, but all the rest was Gaelic and might have been Greek and Hebrew for me. Whatever, said I, to show him I had caught a word. Yes, 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 says he and then he looked at the other men, as much as to say, I told you I spoke English, and began again as hard as ever in the Gaelic. This time I picked out another word, tied. Then I had a flash of hope. I remembered he was always waving his hand towards the mainland of the Ross. Do you mean when the tide is out? I cried, and could not finish. Yes, yes, said he, tied. At that I turned tail upon their boat where my adviser had once more begun to tee-hee with laughter, leaped back the way I had come, from one stone to another, and set off running across the isle as I had never run before. In about half an hour I came out upon the shores of the creek, and sure enough it was shrunk into a little trickle of water, through which I dashed, not above my knees, and landed with a shout on the main island. A sea-bred boy would not have stayed a day on Arid which is only what they call a tidal islet, and except in the bottom of the neeps, can be entered and left twice in every twenty-four hours, either dry-shod or at the most by wading. Even I, who had the tide going out and in before me in the bay, and even watched for the ebbs, the better to get my shellfish, even I, I say, if I had sat down to think, instead of raging at my fate, must have soon guessed the secret and got free. It was no wonder the fishers had not understood me. The wonder was whether they had ever guessed my pitiful illusion and taken the trouble to come back. I had starved with cold and hunger on that island for close upon one hundred hours, but for the fishers I might have left my bones there in pure folly, and even as it was I had paid for it pretty dear, not only in past sufferings but in my present case, being clothed like a beggar-man scarce able to walk, and in great pain of my sore throat. I have seen wicked men and fools, a great many of both, 
and I believe they both get paid in the end, but the fools first. End of chapter. Chapter 15 of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 15 The Lad with a Silver Button Through the Isle of Mull. The Ross of Mull, which I had now got upon, was rugged and trackless, like the isle I had just left, being all bog and briar and big stone. There may be roads for them that know that country well, but for my part I had no better guide than my own nose, and no other landmark than Ben Moore. I aimed as well as I could for the smoke I had seen so often from the island, and with all my great weariness and the difficulty of the way came upon the house in the bottom of a little hollow about five or six at night. It was low and longish, roofed with turf and built of unmortared stones, and on a mound in front of it an old gentleman sat smoking his pipe in the sun. With what little English he had he gave me to understand that my shipmates had got safe ashore, and had broken bread in that very house on the day after. "'Was there one?' I asked. "'Dressed like a gentleman?' He said they all wore rough greatcoats, but to be sure the first of them, the one that came alone, wore breeches and stockings, while the rest had sailors' trousers. "'Ah!' said I. "'And he would have a feathered hat?' He told me no, that he was bareheaded like myself. At first I thought Alan might have lost his hat, and then the rain came in my mind, and I judged it more likely he had it out of harm's way under his greatcoat. This set me smiling, partly because my friend was safe, partly to think of his vanity in dress. And then the old gentleman clapped his hand to his brow, and cried out that I must be the lad with the silver button. "'Why, yes,' said I, in some wonder. "'Well, then,' said the old gentleman, "'I have a word for you.' that you are to follow your friend to his country by Torose. He then asked me how I had fared, and I told him my tale. A South Country man would certainly have laughed, but this old gentleman, I call him so because of his manners, for his clothes were dropping off his back, heard me all through with nothing but gravity and pity. When I had done he took me by the hand, led me into his hut, it was no better, and presented me before his wife, as if she had been the queen and I a duke. The good woman set oat-bread before me in a cold grouse, patting my shoulder and smiling to me all the time, for she had no English, and the old gentleman, not to be behind, brewed me a strong punch out of their country spirit. All the while I was eating, and after that when I was drinking the punch, I could scarce come to believe in my good fortune and the house, though it was thick with the peat-smoke, and as full of holes as a colander, seemed like a palace. The punch threw me in a strong sweat and a deep slumber. The good people let me lie, and it was near noon of the next day before I took the road, my throat already easier, and my spirits quite restored by good fare and good news. The old gentleman, though I pressed him hard, would take no money, and gave me an old bonnet for my head, 
though I am free to own I was no sooner out of view of the house than I very jealously washed this gift of his in a wayside fountain. Thought I to myself, if these are the wild highlanders I could wish my own folk wilder. I not only started late, but I must have wandered nearly half the time. True, I met plenty of people, grubbing in little miserable fields that would not keep a cat, or herding little kine about the bigness of asses. The highland dress being forbidden by law since the rebellion, and the people condemned to the lowland habit, which they much disliked, it was strange to see the variety of their array. Some went bare only for a hanging cloak or great coat, and carried their trousers on their backs like a useless burden. Some had made an imitation of the tartan with little party-coloured stripes, patched together like an old wife's quilt. Others, again, still wore the highland philobeg, but by putting a few stitches between the legs transformed it into a pair of trousers like a Dutchman's. All those makeshifts were condemned and punished, for the law was harshly applied, in hopes to break up the clan's spirit, but in that out-of-the-way sea-bound isle there were few to make remarks, and fewer to tell tales. They seemed in great poverty, which was no doubt natural, now that rapine was put down, and the chiefs kept no longer an open house, and the roads, even such a wandering country by-track as the one I followed, were infested with beggars. And here again I marked a difference from my own part of the country, for our lowland beggars, even the gownsmen themselves, who begged by patent, had a louting, flattering way with them, and if you gave them a plaque and asked changed, would very civilly return you a bottle. But these highland beggars stood on their dignity, asked alms only to buy snuff, by their account, and would give no change. To be sure, this was no concern of mine, except in so far as it entertained me by the way. What was much more to the purpose, few had any English, and these few, unless they were of the brotherhood of beggars, not very anxious to place it at my service. I knew Torosay to be my destination, and repeated the name to them, and pointed. But instead of simply pointing in reply, they would give me a screed of the Gaelic that set me foolish, so it was small wonder if I went out of my road as often as I stayed in it. At last, about eight at night, and already very weary, I came to a lone house, where I asked admittance, and was refused, until I bethought me of the power of money in so poor a country, and held up one of my guineas in my finger and thumb. Thereupon the man of the house, who had hitherto pretended to have no English, and driven me from his door by signals, suddenly began to speak as clearly as was needful, and agreed for five shillings to give me a night's lodging, and guide me the next day to Torosay. I slept uneasily that night, fearing I should be robbed, but I might have spared myself the pain, for my host was no robber, only miserably poor and a great cheat. He was not alone in his poverty, for the next morning we must go five miles about to the house of what he called a rich man, to have one of my guineas changed. This was perhaps a rich man for Mull, he would have scarce been thought so in the South, for it took all he had. The whole house was turned upside down, and a neighbour brought under contribution, before he could scrape together twenty shillings in silver. The odd shilling he kept for himself, protesting he could ill afford to have so great a sum of money lying locked up. For all that he was very curious and well-spoken, 
made us both sit down with his family to dinner, and brewed punch in a fine china bowl, over which my rascal guy grew so merry that he refused to start. I was for getting angry, and appealed to the rich man, Hector MacLean was his name, who had been a witness to our bargain and to my payment of the five shillings. But MacLean had taken his share of the punch, and vowed that no gentleman should leave his table after the bowl was brewed, so there was nothing for it but to sit and hear Jacobite toast and Gaelic songs, till all were tipsy, and staggered off to the bed or the barn for their night's rest. Next day, the fourth of my travels, we were up before five upon the clock, but my rascal guide got to the bottle at once, and it was three hours before I had him clear of the house, and then, as you shall hear, only for a worse disappointment. As long as we went down a heathery valley that lay before Mr. McLean's house, all went well. Only my guide looked constantly over his shoulder, and when I asked him the cause, only grinned at me. No sooner, however, had we crossed the back of a hill and got out of sight of the house windows, than he told me Torosay lay right in front, and that a hilltop, which he pointed out, was my best landmark. "'I care very little for that,' said I, "'since you are going with me.' The impotent cheat answered me in the Gaelic that he had no English. "'My fine fellow,' I said, "'I know very well your English comes and goes. Tell me what will bring it back. Is it more money you wish?' Five shillings more,' said he, "'and herself will bring you there.' I reflected a while, and then offered him two, which he accepted greedily, and insisted on having in his hands at once, for luck, as he said, but I think it was rather for my misfortune. The two shillings carried him not quite as many miles, at the end of which distance he sat down upon the wayside, and took off his brogues from his feet, like a man about to rest. I was now red-hot. "'Ha!' said I. "'Have you no more English?' He said impudently, "'No.' At that I boiled over, and lifted my hand to strike him, and he, drawing a knife from his rags, squatted back and grinned at me like a wildcat. At that, forgetting everything but my anger, I ran in upon him, put aside his knife with my left, and struck him in the mouth with the right. I was a strong lad, and very angry, and he but a little man, and he went down before me heavily. By good luck his knife flew out of his hand as he fell. I picked up both that and his brogues, wished him a good morning, and set off upon my way leaving him barefoot and disarmed. I chuckled to myself as I went, being sure I was done with that rogue, for a variety of reasons. First, he knew he could have no more of my money. Next, the brogues were worth in that country only a few pence. And lastly, the knife, which was really a dagger, it was against the law for him to carry. In about half an hour of walk, I overtook a great ragged man, moving pretty fast but feeling before him with a staff. He was quite blind, and told me he was a catechist, which should have put me at my ease. But his face went against me. It seemed dark and dangerous and secret, and presently, as we began to go on alongside, I saw the steel butt of a pistol sticking from under the flap of his coat-pocket. To carry such a thing meant a fine of fifteen pounds sterling upon a first offence and transportation to the colonies upon a second. Nor could I quite see why a religious teacher should go armed, or what a blind man could be doing with a pistol. 
I told him about my guide, for I was proud of what I had done, and my vanity for once got the heels of my prudence. At the mention of the five shillings he cried out so loud that I made up my mind I should say nothing of the other two, and was glad he could not see my blushes. "'Was it too much?' I asked, a little faltering. "'Too much!' cries he. "'Why, I would guide you to Torosay myself for a dram of brandy, and give you the great pleasure of my company, me that is a man of some learning, in the bargain.' I said I did not see how a blind man could be a guide, but at that he laughed aloud, and said his stick was eyes enough for an eagle. "'In the Isle of Mull, at least,' says he, "'where I know every stone and heather-bush by mark of head. See now,' he said, striking right and left, as if to make sure, "'down there a burn is running, and at the head of it there stands a bit of a small hill with a stone cocked upon the top of that.' and it's hard at the foot of the hill that the way runs by to Torosay, and the way here, being for droves, is plainly trodden, and will show grassy through the heather." I had to own he was right in every feature, and told my wonder. "'Ha!' says he, "'that's nothing. Would you believe me now, that before the act came out, and when there were weapons in this country, I could shoot?' "'Aye, could I?' cries he, and then with a leer. If you had such a thing as a pistol here to try with, I would show you how it's done." I told him I had nothing of the sort, and gave him a wider berth. If he had known, his pistol stuck at that time quite plainly out of his pocket, and I could see the sun twinkle on the steel of the butt. But by the better luck for me he knew nothing, thought all was covered, and lied on in the dark. He then began to question me cunningly, where I came from, whether I was rich whether I could change a five-shilling piece for him, which he declared he had that moment in his sporan, and all the time he kept edging up to me, and I avoiding him. We were now upon a sort of green cattle-track which crossed the hills towards Torosay, and we kept changing sides upon that like answers in a reel. I had so plainly the upper hand that my spirits rose, and indeed I took a pleasure in this game of blind man's bluff but the catechist grew angrier and angrier, and at last began to swear in Gaelic and to strike for my legs with his staff. Then I told him that, sure enough, I had a pistol in my pocket as well as he, and if he did not strike across the hill due south, I would even blow his brains out. He became at once very polite, and after trying to soften me for some time, but quite in vain, he cursed me once more in Gaelic and took himself off. I watched him striding along, through bog and briar, tapping with his stick, until he turned the end of a hill and disappeared in the next hollow. Then I struck on again for Torosay, much better pleased to be alone than to travel with that man of learning. This was an unlucky day, and these two, of whom I had just rid myself, one after the other, were the two worst men I met with in the highlands. At Torosay, on the sound of Mull, and looking over to the mainland of Morven, there was an inn with an innkeeper, who was a Maclean, it appeared, of a very high family, for to keep an inn is thought even more genteel in the highlands than it is with us, perhaps as partaking of hospitality, or perhaps because the trade is idle and drunken. He spoke good English, and finding me to be something of a scholar, tried me first in French, where he easily beat me, and then in the Latin in which I don't know which of us did best. 
This pleasant rivalry put us at once upon friendly terms, and I sat up and drank punch with him, or, to be more correct, sat up and watched him drink it, until he was so tipsy that he wept upon my shoulder. I tried him, as if by accident, with the sight of Alan's button, but it was plain he had never seen or heard of it. Indeed, he bore some grudge against the family and friends of Ardshiel, and before he was drunk he read me a lampoon, in very good Latin, but with a very ill meaning, which he had made in elegiac verses upon a person of that house. When I told him of my catechist he shook his head, and said I was lucky to have got clear off. "'That is a very dangerous man,' he said. "'Duncan McKee is his name. He can shoot by the ear at several yards, and he has often been accused of highway robberies, and once of murder.' "'The cream of it is,' says I, that he called himself a catechist. "'And why should he not?' says he, when that is what he is. It was Maclean of Duart gave it to him before he was blind. But perhaps it was a pity, says my host, for he is always on the road, going from one place to another to hear the young folks say their religion, and doubtless that is a great temptation to the poor man. At last, when my landlord could drink no more, he showed me to a bed, and I lay down in very good spirits, having travelled the greater part of that big and crooked island of Mull, from Arid to Torosay, fifty miles as the crow flies, and, with my wanderings, much nearer a hundred, in four days and with little fatigue. Indeed I was by far in better heart and health of body at the end of that long tramp than I had been at the beginning. End of chapter Chapter Sixteen of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Sixteen The Lad with the Silver Button Across Morven. There is a regular ferry from Torosay to Kinlochaline on the mainland. Both shores of the Sound are in the country of the strong clan of the Macleans, and the people that passed the ferry with me were almost all of that clan. The skipper of the boat, on the other hand, was called Neil Roy Macrob, and since Macrob was one of the names of Alan's clansmen, and Alan himself had sent me to that ferry, I was eager to come to private speech of Neil Roy. In the crowded boat this was, of course, impossible, and the passage was a very slow affair. There was no wind, and as the boat was wretchedly equipped, we could pull but two oars on one side and one on the other. The men gave way, however, with a good will, the passengers taking spells to help them, and the whole company giving the time in Gaelic boat songs. And what were the songs, and the sea air, and the good nature and spirit of all concerned, and the bright weather? The passage was a pretty thing to have seen. But there was one melancholy part. In the mouth of Loch Aline we found a great sea-going ship at anchor, and this I supposed at first to be one of the King's cruisers which were kept along that coast, both summer and winter, to prevent communication with the French. As we got a little nearer it became plain she was a ship of merchandise, and what still more puzzled me, not only her decks but the sea-beach also, 
were quite black with people, and skiffs were continually plying to and fro between them. Yet nearer, and there began to come to our ears a great sound of mourning, the people on board and those on the shore crying and lamenting one to another, so as to pierce the heart. Then I understood this was an emigrant ship, bound for the American colonies. We put the ferry-boat alongside, and the exiles leaned over the bulwarks, weeping and reaching out their hands to my fellow-passengers, among whom they counted some near friends. How long this might have gone on I do not know, for they seemed to have no sense of time, but at last the captain of the ship, who seemed near beside himself, and no great wonder, in the midst of this crying and confusion, came to the side and begged us to depart. Thereupon Neil sheered off, and the chief singer in our boat struck into a melancholy air, which was presently taken up both by the emigrants and their friends upon the beach, so that it sounded from all sides like a lament for the dying. I saw the tears run down the cheeks of the men and women in the boat, even as they bent at the oars, and the circumstances and the music of the song, which is one called La Cabre No More, were highly affecting even to myself. At Kinlochaline I got Neil Roy upon one side on the beach, and said I made sure he was one of Appen's men. "'And what for no?' said he. "'I am seeking somebody,' said I, "'and it comes in my mind that you will have news of him. Alan Breck Stewart is his name.' And very foolishly, instead of showing him the button, I sought to pass a shilling in his hand. At this he drew back. I am very much affronted, he said, and this is not the way that one gentleman should behave to another at all. The man you ask for is in France, but if he were in my sporin, says he, and your belly full of shillings, it would not hurt a hair upon his body. I saw I had gone the wrong way to work, and without wasting time upon apologies, showed him the button lying in the hollow of my palm. A wheel, wheel, said Neil. And I think ye might have begun with that end of the stick, whatever. But if ye are the lad with the silver button, all is well, and I have the word to see that ye come safe. But if ye will pardon me to speak plainly, says he, there is a name that you should never take into your mouth, and that is the name of Alan Breck. And there is a thing that ye would never do, and that is to offer your dirty money to a Highland gentleman." It was not very easy to apologize, for I could scarce tell him, what was the truth, that I had never dreamed he would set up to be a gentleman until he told me so. Neil, on his part, had no wish to prolong his dealings with me, only to fulfil his orders and be done with it, and he made haste to give me my route. This was to lie the night in King Lochaline and the public inn, to cross Morven the next day to Ardgour and lie the night in the house of one John of the Claymore, who was warned that I might come, the third day to be set across one lock at Corran, and another at Balakulish, and then ask my way to the house of James of the Glens, at Aucarn in Durer of Appen. There was a good deal of ferrying, as you hear, the sea in all this part running deep into the mountains and winding about their roots. It makes the country strong to hold and difficult to travel but full of prodigious wild and dreadful prospects. I had some other advice from Neil, to speak with no one by the way, to avoid Whigs, Campbells, and the Red Soldiers, to leave the road and lie in a bush, 
if I saw any of the latter coming, for it was never chancy to meet in with them, and, in brief, to conduct myself like a robber or a Jacobite agent, as perhaps Neil thought me. The inn at Kinlochaline was the most beggarly vile place that ever pigs were styed in, full of smoke, vermin, and silent highlanders. I was not only discontented with my lodging, but with myself for my mismanagement of Neil, and thought I could hardly be worse off. But very wrongly, as I was soon to see, for I had not been half an hour at the inn, standing in the door most of the time, to ease my eyes from the peat-smoke, when a thunderstorm came close by, the springs broke in the little hill on which the inn stood, and one end of the house became a running water. Places of public entertainment were bad enough all over Scotland in those days, yet it was a wonder to myself, when I had to go from the fireside to the bed in which I slept, wading over the shoes. Early in my next day's journey I overtook a little, stout, solemn man, walking very slowly with his toes turned out, sometimes reading in a book, and sometimes marking the place with his finger, and dressed decently and plainly in something of a clerical style. This I found to be another catechist, but of a different order from the blind man of Mull, being indeed one of those sent out by the Edinburgh Society for Propagating Christian Knowledge, to evangelize the more savage places of the Highlands. His name was Henderland. He spoke with a broad south-country tongue, which I was beginning to weary for the sound of, and besides common countryship, we soon found we had a more particular bond of interest for my good friend, the minister of Essendine, had translated into the Gaelic in his by-time a number of hymns and pious books which Henderlin used in his work, and held in great esteem. Indeed, it was one of these he was carrying and reading when we met. We fell in company at once, our ways lying together as far as to King Gerlach. As we went, he stopped and spoke with all the wayfarers and workers that we met or passed, and though of course I could not tell what they discoursed about, yet I judged Mr. Henderlin must be well liked in the countryside, for I observed many of them to bring out their mulls and share a pinch of snuff with him. I told him as far in my affairs as I judged wise. As far, that is, as they were none of Allen's, and gave Balakulish as the place I was travelling to, to meet a friend, for I thought Ocharn or even Durer would be too particular and might put him on the scent. On his part he told me much of his work, and the people he worked among, the hiding priests and Jacobites, the disarming act, the dress, and many other curiosities of the time and place. He seemed moderate, blaming Parliament in several points, and especially because they had framed the act more severely against those who wore the dress than against those who carried weapons. This moderation put it in my mind to question him of the Red Fox and the Appen Tenants, questions which, I thought, would seem natural enough in the mouth of one travelling to that country. He said it was a bad business. "'It's wonderful,' said he, "'where the tenants find the money, for their life is mere starvation. You don't carry such a thing as snuff, do you, Mr. Balfour? No. Well, I'm better wanting it.' But these tenants, as I was saying, are doubtless partly driven to it. James Stuart Endurer, that's him they call James of the Glens, is half-brother to Ardshiel, the captain of the clan, 
and he is a man much looked up to, and drives very hard. And then there's one they call Alan Breck. Ah! I cried. What of him? What of the wind that bloweth where it listeth? said Henderlin. He's here and away, here to-day and gone to-morrow, a fair heather-cat. He might be glowering at the two of us out of yon wind-bush, and I wouldn't wonder. You no carry such a thing a snuff, will you? I told him no, and that he had asked the same thing more than once. It's highly possible, said he, sighing, but it seems strange you shouldn't carry it. However, I was saying, this Alembrick is a bold, desperate customer, and well kent to be James's right hand. His life is forfeit already. He would boggle at nothing, and maybe, if a tenant body were to hang back, he would get a dirk in his wame. "'You make a poor story of it all, Mr. Henderlin,' said I. "'If it is all fear upon both sides, I care to hear no more of it.' "'Nah,' said Mr. Henderlin, "'but there's love, too, and self-denial that should put the like of you and me to shame. There's something fine about it. No, perhaps Christian, but humanly fine. Even Alan Breck, by all that I hear, is a child to be respected. There's many a lion's sneck-draw sits close in Kirk, in our own part of the country, and stands well in the world's eye, and maybe is a far worse man, Mr. Balfour, than yon misguided shedder of man's blood. Aye, aye, we might take a lesson by them. You'll perhaps think I've been too long in the Highlands," he added, smiling to me. I told him, not at all, that I had seen much to admire among the Highlanders, and if he came to that, Mr. Campbell himself was a Highlander. "'Aye,' said he, "'that's true. It's a fine blood.' "'And what is the king's agent about?' I asked. "'Colin Campbell,' says Handelin, "'putting his head in a bee's bike. "'He is to turn the tenants out by force, I hear?' said I. "'Yes,' says he. "'But the business is gone, back and forth, as folk say. First, James of the Glens rode to Edinburgh, and got some lawyer, a steward, no doubt, they all hang together like bats in a steeple, and had the proceedings stayed. And then Colin Campbell came in again, and had the upper hand before the barons of Exchequer. And now they tell me the first of the tenants are to flit to-morrow. It's to begin at Durer, under James's very windows, which doesn't seem wise by my humble way of it. "'Do you think they'll fight?' I asked. "'Well,' says Henderland, "'they're disarmed.' or supposed to be, for there's still a good deal of cold iron lying by in quiet places, and then Colin Campbell has the soldiers coming. But for all that, if I was his lady wife, I wouldn't be well pleased till I got him home again. They're queer customers, the Appen Stuarts. I asked if they were worse than their neighbours. No, they, said he, and that's the worst part of it, for if Colin Roy can get his business done in Appen, he has it all to begin again in the next country, which they call Mamor, and which is one of the countries of the Camerons. He's king's factor upon both, and from both he has to drive out the tenants. And indeed, Mr. Balfour, to be open with you, it's my belief that if he escapes the one lot, he'll get his death by the other. So we continued talking and walking the great part of the day, until at last Mr. Hendelin after expressing his delight in my company, and satisfaction at meeting with a friend of Mr. Campbell's, whom, says he, 
I would make the bold to call that sweet singer of our combinated Zion. Propose that I should make a short stage and lie the night in his house, a little beyond Kingerlach. To say truth, I was overjoyed, for I had no great desire for John of the Claymore, and since my double misadventure, first with the guide and next with the gentleman's skipper, I stood in some fear of any highland stranger. Accordingly we shook hands upon the bargain, and came in the afternoon to a small house, standing alone by the shore of the Linne Lock. The sun was already gone from the desert mountains of Ardgur upon the hither side, but shone on those of Appen on the farther. The loch lay as still as a lake. Only the gulls were crying round the sides of it, and the whole place seemed solemn and uncouth. We had no sooner come to the door of Mr. Henderland's dwelling than to my great surprise, for I was now used to the politeness of Highlanders, he burst rudely past me, dashed into the room, caught up a jar and a small horn-spoon, and began ladling snuff into his nose in most excessive quantities. Then he had a hearty fit of sneezing, and looked round upon me with a rather silly smile. "'It's a vow I took,' says he. "'I took a vow upon me that I would not carry it. Doubtless it's a great privation, but when I think upon the martyrs, not only to the Scottish covenant, but to other points of Christianity, I think shame to mind it.' As soon as we had eaten, and porridge and whey were the best of the good man's diet, he took a grave face, and said he had a duty to perform by Mr. Campbell, and that was to inquire into my state of mind towards God. I was inclined to smile at him since the business of the snuff, but he had not spoken long before he brought the tears into my eyes. There are two things that men should never weary of, goodness and humility. We get none too much of them in this rough world among cold, proud people, but Mr. Henderland had their very speech upon his tongue. And though I was a good deal puffed up with my adventures and with having come off, as the saying is, with flying colours, yet he soon had me on my knees beside a simple, poor old man, and both proud and glad to be there. Before we went to bed he offered me sixpence to help me on my way out of a scanty store he kept in the turf-wall of his house, at which excess of goodness I knew not what to do. But at last he was so earnest with me that I thought it the more mannerly part to let him have his way, and so left him poorer than myself. End of chapter Chapter 17 of Kidnapped this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 17 The Death of the Red Fox. The next day Mr. Hendelin found for me a man who had a boat of his own, and was to cross the Linney Lock that afternoon into Appen, fishing. Him he prevailed on to take me, for he was one of his flock, and in this way I saved a long day's travel, and the price of the two public ferries I must otherwise have passed. It was near noon before we set out, a dark day with clouds, and the sun shining upon little patches. The sea was here very deep and still and had scarce a wave upon it, so that I must put the water to my lips before I could believe it 
to be truly salt. The mountains on either side were high, rough, and barren, very black and gloomy in the shadow of the clouds, but all silver-laced with little watercourses where the sun shone upon them. It seemed a hard country, this of Appen, for people to care as much about as Alan did. There was but one thing to mention. A little after we had started, the sun shone upon a little moving clump of scarlet close in along the waterside to the north. It was much of the same red as soldiers' coats. Every now and then, too, there came little sparks and lightnings, as though the sun had struck upon bright steel. I asked my boatman what it should be, and he answered he supposed it was some of the red soldiers coming from Fort William into Appen, against the poor tenantry of the country. Well, it was a sad sight to me, and whether it was because of my thoughts of Alan, or from something prophetic in my bosom, although this was but the second time I had seen King George's troops, I had no good will to them. At last we came so near the point of land at the entering inn of Loch Leven, that I begged to be set on shore. My boatman, who was an honest fellow and mindful of his promise to the catechist, would fain have carried me on to Balakulish, but as this was to take me farther from my secret destination, I insisted, and was set on shore at last under the wood of Lettermore, or Lettervore, as I have heard it both ways, in Allen's country of Appen. This was a wood of birches, growing on a steep craggy side of a mountain that overhung the loch. It had many openings and ferny howes, and a road or bridle track ran north and south through the midst of it, by the edge of which, where was a spring, I sat down to eat some oat-bread of Mr. Henderland's, and think upon my situation. Here I was not only troubled by a cloud of stinging midges, but far more by the doubts of my mind what I ought to do, why I was going to join myself with an outlaw and a would-be murderer like Alan, whether I should not be acting more like a man of sense, to tramp back to the south country direct, by my own guidance and at my own charges, and what Mr. Campbell or even Mr. Henderlin would think of me if they should learn my folly and presumption, these were the doubts that now began to come in on me stronger than ever. As I was so sitting and thinking, a sound of men and horses came to me through the wood, and presently after, at a turning of the road, I saw four travellers come into view. The way was in this part so rough and narrow that they came single and led their horses by the reins. The first was a great red-headed gentleman, of an imperious and flushed face, who carried his hat in his hand, and fanned himself, for he was in a breathing heat the second, by his decent black garb and white wig, I correctly took to be a lawyer. The third was a servant, and wore some part of his clothes in tartan, which showed that his master was of a highland family, and either an outlaw, or else in singular good odour with the government, since the wearing of tartan was against the act. If I had been better versed in these things I would have known the tartan to be of the argyle or Campbell colours. This servant had a good-sized portmanteau strapped on his horse, and a net of lemons to brew punch with, hanging at the saddle, though, as was often the custom with luxurious travellers in that part of the country. As for the fourth who brought up the tale, I had seen his like before, and knew him at once to be a sheriff's officer. I had no sooner seen these people coming than I made up my mind, 
for no reason that I can tell, to go through with my adventure, and when the first came alongside of me I rose up from the bracken and asked him the way to Aucarn. He stopped and looked at me, as I thought a little oddly, and then turning to the lawyer, Mungo, said he, there's many a man would think this more of a warning than two piats. Here am I on my road to Durer on the job ye ken, and here is a young lad starts up out of the bracken and spears if I'm on the way to Aucarn. Glenure, said the other, this is an ill subject for jesting. These two had now drawn close up and were gazing at me, while the two followers had halted about a stone cast in the rear. "'And what seek ye in Aucarn?' said Colin Roy Campbell of Glenure. Him they called the Red Fox, for it was he that I had stopped. "'The man that lives there,' said I. "'James of the Glens,' says Glenure, musingly, and then to the lawyer. "'Is he gathering his people, think ye?' "'Anyway,' says the lawyer, "'we shall do better to bide where we are, and let the soldiers rally us.' "'If you are concerned for me,' said I, "'I am neither of his people nor yours, but an honest subject of King George, owing no man, and fearing no man.' "'Why, very well said,' replies the factor. "'But if I may make so bold as ask, what does this honest man so far from his country?' and why does he come seeking the brother of Ardshiel? I have power here, I must tell you. I am king's factor upon several of these estates, and have twelve files of soldiers at my back. I have heard a waif word in the country, said I, a little nettled, that you were a hard man to drive. He still kept looking at me, as if in doubt. Well, said he, at last, your tongue is bold but I am no unfriend to plainness. If ye had asked me the way to the door of James Stewart on any other day but this, I would have set ye right, and bidden ye Godspeed. But to-day, eh, Mungo? And he turned again to look at the lawyer. But just as he turned there came the shot of a firelock from higher up the hill, and with the very sound of it Glenure fell upon the road. "'Oh, I'm dead!' he cried, several times over. The lawyer had caught him up and held him in his arms, the servant standing over and clasping his hands, and now the wounded man looked from one to another with scared eyes, and there was a change in his voice that went to the heart. "'Take care of yourselves,' said he. "'I'm dead.' He tried to open his clothes as if to look for the wound, but his fingers slipped on the buttons. With that he gave a great sigh, his head rolled on his shoulder and he passed away. The lawyer said never a word, but his face was as sharp as a pen, and as white as the dead man's. The servant broke out into a great noise of crying and weeping, like a child, and I on my side stood staring at them in a kind of horror. The sheriff's officer had run back at the first sound of the shot, to hasten the coming of the soldiers. At last the lawyer laid down the dead man and his blood upon the road, and got to his own feet with a kind of stagger. I believe it was his movement that brought me to my senses, for he had no sooner done so than I began to scramble up the hill, crying out, THE MURDERER! THE MURDERER! So little a time had elapsed that when I got to the top of the first steepness, and could see some part of the open mountain, 
the murderer was still moving away at no great distance. He was a big man, in a black coat, with metal buttons, and carried a long fowling-piece. "'Here!' I cried. "'I see him!' At that the murderer gave a little quick look over his shoulder, and began to run. The next moment he was lost in a fringe of birches. Then he came out again on the upper side, where I could see him climbing like a jackanapes, for that part was again very steep, and then he dipped behind a shoulder and I saw him no more. All this time I had been running on my side, and had got a good way up, when a voice cried upon me to stand. I was at the edge of the upper wood, and so now, when I halted and looked back, I saw all the open part of the hill below me. The lawyer and the sheriff's officer were standing just above the road, crying and waving on me to come back, and on their left the redcoats, musket in hand, were beginning to struggle singly out of the lower wood. "'Why should I come back?' I cried. "'Come you on!' Ten pounds if you take that lad!' cried the lawyer. "'He's an accomplice. He was posted here to hold us in talk.' At that word, which I could hear quite plainly, though it was to the soldiers and not to me that he was crying it, my heart came in my mouth with quite a new kind of terror. Indeed it is one thing to stand the danger of your life, and quite another to run the peril of both life and character. The thing besides had come so suddenly, like thunder out of a clear sky, that I was all amazed and helpless. The soldiers began to spread, some of them to run, and others to put up their pieces and cover me, and still I stood. "'Juck in here among the trees,' said a voice close by. Indeed I scarce know what I was doing, but I obeyed, and as I did so I heard the firelocks bang and the balls whistle in the birches. Just inside the shelter of the trees I found Alan Breck standing with a fishing-rod. He gave me no salutation. Indeed it was no time for civilities, only, Come, says he, and set off running along the side of the mountain towards Balakulish and I, like a sheep, to follow him. Now we ran among the birches, now stooping behind low humps upon the mountainside, now crawling on all fours among the heather. The pace was deadly, my heart seemed bursting against my ribs, and I had neither time to think nor breath to speak with. Only I remember seeing with wonder that Alan every now and then would straighten himself to his full height and look back, and every time he did so, there came a great far-away cheering and crying of the soldiers. Quarter of an hour later Alan stopped, clapped down flat in the heather, and turned to me. Now, said he, it's earnest. Do as I do, for your life. And at the same speed, but now with infinitely more precaution, we traced back again across the mountainside by the same way that we had come, only perhaps higher till at last Alan threw himself down in the upper wood of Lettermore, where I had found him at the first, and lay with his face in the bracken, panting like a dog. My own sides so ached, my head so swam, my tongue so hung out of my mouth with heat and dryness, that I lay beside him like one dead. End of chapter Chapter Eighteen of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 18. I Talk with Alan in the Wood of Lettermore. Alan was the first to come round. He rose, went to the border of the wood, peered out a little, and then returned and sat down. Well, said he, yon was a hot burst, David. I said nothing, nor so much as lifted my face. I had seen murder done, and a great ruddy jovial gentleman struck out of life in a moment. The pity of that sight was still sore within me, and yet that was but a part of my concern. Here was murder done upon the man Alan hated. Here was Alan skulking in the trees and running from the troops, and whether his was the hand that fired or only the head that ordered signified but little. By my way of it, my only friend in that wild country was blood-guilty in the first degree. I held him in horror. I could not look upon his face. I would have rather lain alone in the rain on my cold isle than in that warm wood beside a murderer. "'Are ye still wearied?' he asked again. "'No,' said I, still with my face in the bracken. "'No, I'm not wearied now, and I can speak. "'You and me must twine,' I said. "'I liked you very well, Alan, but your ways are not mine, "'and they're not God's, and the short and the long of it is just that we must twine.' "'I will hardly twine from ye, David, without some kind of reason for the same,' said Alan, mighty gravely. "'If ye can anything against my reputation, it's the least thing that ye should do, for old acquaintance' sake, to let me hear the name of it, and if ye have only taken a distaste to my society, it will be proper for me to judge if I'm insulted.' "'Alan,' said I, "'what is the sense of this? Ye ken very well yon Campbell-man lies in his blood upon the road.' He was silent for a little. Then says he, "'Did ye ever hear tell of the story of the man and the good people?' By which he meant the fairies. "'No,' said I, "'nor do I want to hear it.' "'With your permission, Mr. Balfour, I will tell it you whatever,' says Alan. "'The man ye should ken was cast upon a rock in the sea, where it appears the good people were in use to come and rest as they went through to Ireland.' The name of this rock is called the Scarybore, and it's not far from where we suffered shipwreck. Well, it seems the man cried so sore, if he could just see his little baron before he died. Then at last the king of the good people took pity upon him, and sent one flying that brought back the baron in a poke, and laid it down beside the man where he lay sleeping. So when the man woke, there was a poke beside him and something into the inside of it that moved. Well, it seems he was one of these gentry that think I the worst of things, and for greater security he stuck his dirk throughout that poke before he opened it, and there was his bairn dead. I am thinking to myself, Mr. Balfour, that you and the man are very much alike. "'Do you mean you had no hand in it?' cried I, sitting up. "'I will tell you first of all, Mr. Balfour of Shaw's, as one friend to another,' said Alan that if I were going to kill a gentleman it would not be in my own country to bring trouble on my clan, and I would not go wanting sword and gun, and with a long fishing-rod upon my back.' "'Well,' said I, "'that's true.' 
"'And now,' continued Alan, taking out his dirk and laying his hand upon it in a certain manner, "'I swear upon the holy iron I had neither art nor part, act nor thought in it.' "'I thank God for that!' cried I, and offered him my hand. He did not appear to see it. "'And here is a great deal of work about a Campbell,' said he. "'They are not so scarce that I can.' "'At least,' said I, "'you cannot justly blame me, for you know very well what you told me in the brig. But the temptation and the act are different. I thank God again for that. We may all be tempted, but to take a life in cold blood, Alan!' And I could say no more for the moment. "'And do you know who did it?' I added. Do you know that man in the black coat?" "'I have nae clear mind about his coat,' said Alan cunningly. "'But it sticks in my head that it was blue.' "'Blue or black, do you know him?' said I. "'I could not just conscientiously swear to him,' says Alan. "'He gaed very close by me, to be sure, but it's a strange thing that I should just have been tying my brogues.' "'Can you swear that you don't know him, Alan?' I cried, half-angered, half in a mind to laugh at his evasions. "'Not yet,' says he, "'but I have a grand memory for forgetting, David.' "'And yet there was one thing I saw clearly,' said I, "'and that was that you exposed yourself and me to draw the soldiers.' "'It's very likely,' said Alan, "'and so would any gentleman. You and me were innocent of that transaction.' the better reason, since we were falsely suspected, that we should get clear," I cried. The innocent should surely come before the guilty. "'Why, David,' said he, "'the innocent have I a chance to get assoiled in court. But for the lad that shot the bullet, I think the best place for him will be the heather. Them that have not dipped their hands in any little difficulty should be very mindful of the case of them that have. And that is the good Christianity.' for if it was the other way round about, and the lad whom I couldn't just clearly see had been in our shoes, and we in his, as might very well have been, I think we would be a good deal obliged to him ourselves, if he would draw the soldiers. When it came to this I gave Alan up. But he looked so innocent all the time, and was in such clear good faith in what he said, and so ready to sacrifice himself for what he deemed his duty, that my mouth was closed. Mr. Henderland's words came back to me, that we ourselves might take a lesson by these wild highlanders. Well, here I had taken mine. Alan's morals were all tail first, but he was ready to give his life for them, such as they were. "'Alan,' said I, "'I'll not say it's the good Christianity as I understand it, but it's good enough, and here I offer you my hand for the second time whereupon he gave me both of his, saying surely I had cast a spell upon him, for he could forgive me anything. Then he grew very grave, and said we had not much time to throw away, but must both flee that country, he because he was a deserter, and the whole of Appen would now be searched like a chamber, and every one obliged to give a good account of himself, and I, because I was certainly involved in the murder. Oh says I, willing to give him a little lesson, I have no fear of the justice of my country. "'As if this was your country,' said he, "'or as if you would be tried here, in a country of Stuarts.' "'It's all Scotland,' said I. "'Man, I was wonder at you. 
said Alan. This is a Campbell that's been killed. Well, it'll be tried in Inverara, the Campbell's head place, with fifteen Campbells in the jury-box, and the biggest Campbell of all, and that's the Duke, sitting cocking on the bench. Justice, David, the same justice by all the world as Glenure found a while ago at the roadside. This frightened me a little, I confess, and would have frightened me more if I had known how nearly exact were Alan's predictions. Indeed, it was but in one point that he exaggerated, there being but eleven Campbells on the jury, though as the other four were equally in the Duke's dependence, it mattered less than might appear. Still, I cried out that he was unjust to the Duke of Argyle, who, for all he was a Whig, was yet a wise and honest nobleman. Hoot! said Alan. The man's a Whig, no doubt, but I would never deny he was a good chieftain to his clan. And what would the clan think if there was a Campbell shot, and nobody hanged, and their own chief the Justice-General? But I have often observed, said Alan, that you low-country bodies have no clear idea of what's right and wrong. At this I did at last laugh out aloud, when to my surprise Alan joined in, and laughed as merrily as myself. "'Nah, nah,' said he, "'we in the Highlands, David, and when I tell you to run, take my word, and run. No doubt it's a hard thing to skulk and starve in the heather, but it's harder yet to lie shackled in a redcoat prison.' I asked him whither we should flee, and as he told me, to the lowlands, I was a little better inclined to go with him, for indeed I was growing impatient to get back and have the upper hand of my uncle.' Besides, Alan made so sure there would be no question of justice in the matter, that I began to be afraid he might be right. Of all deaths, I would truly like least to die by the gallows, and the picture of that uncanny instrument came into my head with extraordinary clearness, as I had once seen it engraved at the top of a peddler's ballad, and took away my appetite for courts of justice. "'I'll chance it, Alan,' said I. I'll go with you." "'But mind you,' said Alan, "'it's no small thing. Your mon lie bare and hard, and brook many an empty belly. Your bed shall be the moorcocks, and your life shall be like the haunted deers, and ye shall sleep with your hand upon your weapons. Aye, man, ye shall taggle many a weary foot, or we get clear. I tell you this at the start, for it's a life that I ken well. But if ye ask what other chance ye have, I answer, None. Either take to the heather with me, or else hang. And that's a choice very easily made, said I, and we shook hands upon it. And now let's take another keek at the redcoats, says Alan, and he led me to the northeastern fringe of the wood. Looking out between the trees we could see a great side of mountain running down exceeding steep into the waters of the loch. It was a rough part, all hanging stone and heather, and big scrogs of birch-wood, and away at the far end towards Balakulish, little wee red soldiers were dipping up and down over hill and howe, and growing smaller every minute. There was no cheering now, for I think they had other uses for what breath was left them, but they still stuck to the trail, and doubtless thought that we were close in front of them. Alan watched them, smiling to himself. "'Aye,' said he, They'll be gave weary before they've got to the end of that employ. And so you and me, David, can sit down and eat a bite, and breathe a bit longer, and take a dram from my bottle. 
Then we'll strike for Ocarn, the house of my kinsman, James of the Glens, where I must get my clothes and my arms and money to carry us along, and then, David, we'll cry, Forth, Fortune, and take a cast among the heather. So we sat again and ate and drank, in a place whence we could see the sun going down into a field of great, wild, and houseless mountains, such as I was now condemned to wander in with my companion. Partly as we so sat, and partly afterwards, on the way to Aucarn, each of us narrated his adventures, and I shall here set down so much of Alan's as seems either curious or needful. It appears he ran to the bulwarks as soon as the wave was passed, saw me, and lost me, and saw me again as I tumbled in the roost, and at last had one glimpse of me clinging on the yard. It was this that put him in some hope I would maybe get to land after all and made him leave those clues and messages which had brought me, for my sins, to that unlucky country of Appen. In the meanwhile those still on the brig had got the skiff launched, and one or two were on board of her already, when there came a second wave greater than the first, and heaved the brig out of her place, and would certainly have sent her to the bottom, had she not struck and caught on some projection of the reef. When she had struck first it had been bows on so that the stern had hitherto been lowest. But now her stern was thrown in the air, and the bows plunged under the sea, and with that the water began to pour into the fore-scuttle like the pouring of a mill-dam. It took the colour out of Alan's face even to tell what followed. For there were still two men lying impotent in their bunks, and these, seeing the water pour in and thinking the ship had foundered, began to cry out aloud and that with such harrowing cries that all who were on deck tumbled one after another into the skiff and fell to their oars. They were not two hundred yards away when there came a third great sea, and at that the brig lifted clean over the reef, her canvas filled for a moment, and she seemed to sail in chase of them, but settling all the while, and presently she drew down and down, as if a hand were drawing her, and the sea closed over the covenant of Dysart. Never a word they spoke as they pulled ashore, being stunned with the horror of that screaming, but they had scarce set foot upon the beach when Hoseason woke up, as if out of a muse, and bade them lay hands upon Alan. They hung back indeed, having little taste for the employment, but Hoseason was like a fiend, crying that Alan was alone, that he had a great sum about him, that he had been the means of losing the brig and drowning all their comrades and that here was both revenge and wealth upon a single cast. It was seven against one, in that part of the shore there was no rock that Alan could set his back to, and the sailors began to spread out and come behind him. "'And then,' said Alan, "'the little man with the red head. I have no mind of the name that he is called.' "'Riach,' I said. "'Aye,' said Alan, "'Riach. Well, it was him that took up the clubs for me asked the men if they were not feared of a judgment, and says he, Dod, I'll put my back to the Highlandman's myself. There's none such an entirely bad little man, yon little man with the red head, said Alan. He has some spunks of decency. Well, said I, he was kind to me in his way. And so was he to Alan, said he, and by my troth I found his way a very good one. But you see, David, the loss of the ship and the cries of these poor lads set very ill upon the man, and I'm thinking that would be the cause of it. "'Well, I would think so,' 
says I, for he was as keen as any of the rest at the beginning. But how did Hoseason take it? It sticks in my mind that he would take it very ill, says Alan, but the little man cried to me to run, and indeed I thought it was a good observe, and ran. The last that I saw they were all in a knot upon the beach, like folk that were not agreeing very well together. What do you mean by that? said I. Well, the fists were going, said Alan, and I saw one man go down like a pair of breeks. But I thought it would be better not to wait. You see, there's a strip of Campbell's in that end of Mull, which is no good company for a gentleman like me. If it hadn't been for that, I would have waited and looked for you myself, let alone given a hand to the little man. It was droll how Alan dwelt on Mr. Riach's stature, for, to say the truth, the one was not much smaller than the other. So, says he, continuing, I set my best foot forward, and whenever I met in with any one I cried out there was a wreck ashore. Man, they didn't stop to fash with me. You should have seen them linking for the beach. And when they got there they found they had the pleasure of a run, which is I good for a Campbell. I'm thinking it was a judgment on the clan that the brig went down in the lump and didn't break. But it was a very unlucky thing for you, that same, for if any wreck had come ashore they would have hunted high and low, and would soon have found you. End of chapter Chapter nineteen of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 19 The House of Fear Night fell as we were walking, and the clouds, which had broken up in the afternoon, settled in and thickened, so that it fell, for the season of the year, extremely dark. The way we went was over rough mountain-sides, and though Alan pushed on with an assured manner, I could by no means see how he directed himself. At last, about half-past ten of the clock, we came to the top of a brae, and saw lights below us. It seemed a house-door stood open and let out a beam of fire and candlelight, and all round the house and steading five or six persons were moving hurriedly about, each carrying a lighted brand. "'James must have tint his wits!' said Alan. If this was the soldiers instead of you and me, he would be in a bonny mess. But I dare say he'll have a sentry on the road, and he would ken well enough no soldiers would find the way that we came." Hereupon he whistled three times in a particular manner. It was strange to see how, at the first sound of it, all the moving torches came to a stand, as if the bearers were affrighted, and how, at the third, the bustle began again as before. Having thus set folks' minds at rest, we came down the brae, and were met at the yard gate, for this place was like a well-doing farm, by a tall, handsome man of more than fifty, who cried out to Alan in the Gaelic. "'James Stewart,' said Alan, "'I will ask you to speak in Scotch, for here is a young gentleman with me that has none of the other. This is him,' he added, putting his arm through mine, "'a young gentleman of the lowlands, and a laird in his country, too.' but I am thinking that will be the better for his health if we give his name the go-by." James of the Glens turned to me for a moment, and greeted me courteously enough. 
The next he had turned to Alan. "'This has been a dreadful accident,' he cried. "'It will be trouble on the country,' and he wrung his hands. "'Hoots!' said Alan. "'You must take the sorrow with the sweet man. Colin Roy is dead, and be thankful for that.' "'Aye,' said James, "'and by my troth I wish he was alive again. It's all very fine to blow and boast beforehand, but now it's done, Alan, and who's to bear the weight of it?' The accident fell out in Appen. Mind you that, Alan, it's Appen that must pay, and I am a man that has a family." While this was going on I looked about me at the servants. Some were on ladders, digging in the thatch of the house or the farm buildings, from which they brought out guns, swords, and different weapons of war. Others carried them away, and by the sound of mattock blows from somewhere farther down the brae, I supposed they buried them. Though they were all so busy, there prevailed no kind of order in their efforts. Men struggled together for the same gun, and ran into each other with their burning torches, and James was continually turning about from his talk with Alan, to cry out orders which were apparently never understood. The faces in the torchlight were like those of people overcome with hurry and panic, and though none spoke above his breath, their speech sounded both anxious and angry. It was about this time that a lassie came out of the house carrying a pack or bundle, and it has often made me smile to think how Alan's instinct awoke at the mere sight of it. "'What's that the lassie has?' he asked. "'We're just setting the house in order, Alan,' said James, in his frightened and somewhat fawning way. "'They'll search happen with candles, and we must have all things straight. We're digging the bit guns and swords into the moss, you see.' and these, I am thinking, will be your own French clothes. We'll be to bury them, I believe." "'Bury my French clothes!' cried Alan. "'Troth, no!' And he laid hold upon the packet, and retired into the barn to shift himself, recommending me in the meanwhile to his kinsman. James carried me accordingly into the kitchen, and sat down with me at table, smiling and talking at first in a very hospitable manner. But presently the gloom returned upon him. He sat frowning and biting his fingers, only remembered me from time to time, and then gave me but a word or two and a poor smile, and back into his private terrors. His wife sat by the fire and wept, with her face in her hands. Her eldest son was crouched upon the floor, running over a great mass of papers and now and again setting one alight and burning it to the bitter end. All the while a servant lass with a red face was rummaging about the room in a blind hurry of fear, and whimpering as she went, and every now and again one of the men would thrust in his face from the yard, and cry for orders. At last James could keep his seat no longer, and begged my permission to be so unmannerly as walk about. "'I am but poor company altogether, sir,' says he, "'but I can think of nothing but this dreadful accident, and the trouble it is like to bring upon quite innocent persons.' A little after he observed his son burning a paper which he thought should have been kept, and at that his excitement burst out so that it was painful to witness. He struck the lad repeatedly. "'Are you gone, Gite?' he cried. "'Do you wish to hang your father?' And forgetful of my presence, carried on at him a long time together in the Gaelic, the young man answering nothing. Only the wife, at the name of hanging, throwing her apron over her face and sobbing out louder than before. This was all wretched for a stranger like myself to hear and see, and I was right glad when Alan returned, looking like himself in his fine French clothes, 
though to be sure they were now grown almost too battered and withered to deserve the name of fine. I was then taken out in my turn by another of the sons, and given that change of clothing of which I had stood so long in need, and a pair of highland brogues made of deer leather, rather strange at first, but after a little practice very easy to the feet. By the time I came back Alan must have told his story, for it seemed understood that I was to fly with him, and they were all busy upon our equipment. They gave us each a sword and pistols, though I professed my inability to use the former, and with these and some ammunition, a bag of oatmeal, an iron pan, and a bottle of right French brandy, we were ready for the heather. Money, indeed, was lacking. I had about two guineas left. Alan's belt having been dispatched by another hand, that trusty messenger had no more than seventeen pence to his whole fortune and as for James, it appears he had brought himself so low with journeys to Edinburgh and legal expenses on behalf of the tenants, that he could only scrape together three and five pence halfpenny, the most of it in coppers. "'This'll no do,' said Alan. "'You must find a safe bit somewhere nearby,' said James, "'and get word sent to me. You see, you'll have to get this business prettily off, Alan. This is no time to be stayed for a guinea or two. They're sure to get wind of ye, sure to seek ye, and by my way of it, sure to lay on ye the white of this day's accident. If it falls on ye, it falls on me that am your near kinsman, and harboured ye while ye were in the country. And if it comes on me—he paused and bit his fingers with a white face—it would be a painful thing for our friends if I was to hang," said he. "'It would be an ill day for Appen,' says Alan. "'It's a day that sticks in my throat,' said James. "'Oh, man, 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 Alan, you and me have spoken like two fools!' he cried, striking his hand upon the wall so that the house rang again. "'Well, and that's true, too,' said Alan. "'And my friend from the lowlands here, nodding at me, gave me a good word upon that head, if I would only listen to him.' "'But see here,' said James returning to his former manner. If they lay me by the heels, Alan, it's then that you'll be needing the money. For with all that I have said, and that you have said, it will look very black against the two of us. Do you mark that? Well, follow me out, and you'll—I'll see that I'll have to get a paper out against you myself. Have to offer a reward for you. Aye, will I? It's a sore thing to do between such near friends, but if I get the dirtum of this dreadful accident. I'll have to fend for myself, man. Do you see that?" He spoke with a pleading earnestness, taking Alan by the breast of the coat. "'Aye,' said Alan, "'I see that.' "'And you'll have to be clear of the country, Alan. Aye, and clear of Scotland. You and your friend from the lowlands, too. For I'll have to paper your friend from the lowlands. You see that, Alan. Say that you see that.' I thought Alan flushed a bit. "'This is Uncle hard on me that brought him here, James,' said he, throwing his head back. "'It's like making me a traitor.' "'No, Alan, man,' cried James. "'Look things in the face. He'll be papered anyway. Mungo Campbell'll be sure to paper him. What matters if I paper him, too? And then, Alan, I'm a man that has a family.' And then, after a little pause on both sides, "'And, Alan, it'll be a jury of Campbell's,' said he. "'There's one thing,' said Alan, musingly, "'that nobody kens his name.' 
"'Nor yet they shall na, Alan. There's my hand on that!' cried James, for all the world as if he had really known my name and was foregoing some advantage. But just the habit he was in, and what he looked like, and his age and the like, I couldna well do less.' "'I wonder at your father's son,' cried Alan sternly. "'Would you sell the lad with a gift? Would you change his clothes and then betray him?' "'No, no, Alan,' said James. "'No, no, the habit he took off, the habit Mungo saw him in.' But I thought he seemed crestfallen, indeed. He was clutching at every straw. And all the time, I dare say, saw the faces of his hereditary foes on the bench, and in the jury-box, and the gallows in the background. "'Well, sir,' says Alan, turning to me, "'what say ye to that? Ye hear under the safeguard of my honour, and it's my part to see nothing done but what shall please ye.' "'I have but one word to say,' said I, "'for to all this dispute I am a perfect stranger. But the plain common sense is to set the blame where it belongs, and that is on the man who fired the shot.' Paper him, as you call it, set the hunt on him, and let honest, innocent folk show their faces in safety. But at this both Alan and James cried out in horror, bidding me hold my tongue, for that was not to be thought of, and asking me what the Camerons would think, which confirmed me it must have been a Cameron from Amor that did the act. And if I did not see that the lad might be caught, you have not surely thought of that, said they with such innocent earnestness that my hands dropped at my side, and I despaired of argument. "'Very well, then,' said I. "'Paper me, if you please. Paper Allen. Paper King George. We're all three innocent, and that seems to be what's wanted.' "'But at least, sir,' said I to James, recovering from my little fit of annoyance, "'I am Allen's friend, and if I can be helpful to friends of his, I will not stumble at the risk.' I thought it best to put a fair face on my consent, for I saw Alan troubled, and besides, thinks I to myself, as soon as my back is turned they will paper me, as they call it, whether I consent or not. But in this I saw I was wrong, for I had no sooner said the words than Mrs. Stewart leaped out of her chair, came running over to us, and wept first upon my neck and then on Alan's, blessing God for our goodness to her family. "'As for you, Alan, it was no more than your bounden duty,' she said. "'But for this lad that has come here, and seen us at our worst, and seen the good man fleeching like a suitor, him that by right should give his commands like any king. As for you, my lad,' she says, "'my heart is when not to have your name, but I have your face, and as long as my heart beats under my bosom I will keep it, and think of it, and bless it.' And with that she kissed me and burst once more into such sobbing that I stood abashed. "'Hoot, hoot!' said Alan, looking mighty silly. "'The day comes uncle soon in this month of July, and to-morrow there'll be a fine to-do in Appen, a fine riding of dragoons, and crying of Kraken, and running of redcoats, and it behooves you and me to the sooner be gone.' Thereupon we said farewell, and set out again, bending somewhat eastwards, in a fine mild dark night, and over much the same broken country as before. End of chapter Chapter 20 of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 20 The Flight in the Heather, the Rocks Sometimes we walked, sometimes ran, and as it drew on to morning, walked ever the less and ran the more. Though upon its face that country appeared to be a desert, yet there were huts and houses of the people, of which we must have passed more than twenty, hidden in quiet places of the hills. When we came to one of these, Alan would leave me in the way, and go himself and rap upon the side of the house, and speak a while at the window with some sleeper awakened. This was to pass the news, which in that country was so much of a duty that Alan must pause to attend to it even while fleeing for his life, and so well attended to by others, that in more than half of the houses where we called they had already heard of the murder. In the others, as well as I could make out, standing back at a distance and hearing a strange tongue, the news was received with more of consternation than surprise. For all our hurry, day began to come in while we were still far from any shelter. It found us in a prodigious valley, strewn with rocks, and where ran a foaming river. Wild mountains stood around it. There grew there neither grass nor trees, and I have sometimes thought since then that it may have been the valley called Glencoe, where the massacre was in the time of King William. But for the details of our itinerary I am all to seek our way lying now by shortcuts, now by great detours, our pace being so hurried, our time of journeying usually by night, and the names of such places as I asked and heard being in the Gaelic tongue and the more easily forgotten. The first peep of morning, then, showed us this horrible place, and I could see Alan knit his brow. "'This is no fit place for you and me,' he said. "'This is the place they're bound to watch.' and with that he ran harder than ever down to the waterside, in a part where the river was split in two among three rocks. It went through with a horrid thundering that made my belly quake, and there hung over the linn a little mist of spray. Alan looked neither to the right nor to the left, but jumped clean upon the middle rock, and fell there on his hands and knees to check himself, for that rock was small, and he might have pitched over on the far side. I had scarce time to measure the distance, or to understand the peril before I had followed him, and he had caught and stopped me. So there we stood, side by side upon a small rock, slippery with spray, a far broader leap in front of us, and the river dinning upon all sides. When I saw where I was, there came on me a deadly sickness of fear, and I put my hand over my eyes. Alan took me and shook me. I saw he was speaking, but the roaring of the falls and the trouble of my mind prevented me from hearing. Only I saw his face was red with anger, and that he stamped upon the rock. The same look showed me the water raging by, and the mist hanging in the air, and with that I covered my eyes again and shuddered. The next minute Alan had set the brandy-bottle to my lips, and forced me to drink about a gill, which sent the blood into my head again. Then, putting his hands to his mouth, and his mouth to my ear, he shouted, "'Hang or drown!' and turning his back upon me, leaped over the farther branch of the stream, and landed safe. I was now alone upon the rock, which gave me the more room, the brandy was singing in my ears, 
I had this good example fresh before me, and just wit enough to see that if I did not leap at once I should never leap at all. I bent low on my knees, and flung myself forth, with that kind of anger of despair that has sometimes stood me instead of courage. Sure enough, it was but my hands that reached the full length. These slipped, caught again, slipped again, and I was slittering back into the lynn when Alan seized me, first by the hair, then by the collar, and with a great strain dragged me into safety. Never a word, he said, but set off running again for his life, and I must stagger to my feet and run after him. I had been weary before, but now I was sick and bruised, and partly drunken with the brandy. I kept stumbling as I ran. I had a stitch that came near to overmaster me, and when at last Alan paused under a great rock that stood there among a number of others, it was none too soon for David Balfour. A great rock, I have said, but by rights it was two rocks leaning together at the top, both some twenty feet high, and at the first sight inaccessible. Even Alan, though you may say he had as good as four hands, failed twice in an attempt to climb them, and it was only at the third trial, and then by standing on my shoulders and leaping up with such force as I thought must have broken my collarbone, that he secured a lodgment. Once there he let down his leathern girdle, and with the aid of that and a pair of shallow footholds in the rock, I scrambled up beside him. Then I saw why we had come there, for the two rocks, being both somewhat hollow at the top and sloping one to the other, made a kind of dish or saucer, where as many as three or four men might have lain hidden. All this while Alan had not said a word, and had run and climbed with such a savage, silent frenzy of hurry, that I knew that he was in mortal fear of some miscarriage. Even now we were on the rock he said nothing, nor so much as relaxed the frowning look upon his face but clapped flat down, and keeping only one eye above the edge of our place of shelter, scouted all round the compass. The dawn had come quite, clear, we could see the stony sides of the valley, and its bottom, which was bestrewed with rocks, and the river which went from one side to another, and made white falls, but nowhere the smoke of a house, nor any living creature but some eagles screaming round a cliff. Then at last Alan smiled. "'Aye,' said he, "'now we have a chance.' And then, looking at me with some amusement, "'You know very glad at the jumping,' said he. At this I suppose I coloured with mortification, for he added at once, "'Hoots! Small blame to you. To be feared of a thing and yet to do it is what makes the prettiest kind of a man. And then there was water there, and water's a thing that dauntons even me.' "'No, no,' said Alan. "'Is no you that's to blame. It's me.' I asked him why. "'Why,' said he, "'I approve myself a gomeral this night, for first of all I take a wrong road, and that in my own country of Appen, so that the day has caught us where we should never have been, and thanks to that we lie here in some danger and mere discomfort. And next, which is the worst of the two, for a man that has been so much among the heather as myself, I have come wanting a water-bottle, and here we lie for a long summer's day with nothing but neat spirit. You may think that a small matter, but before it comes night, David, you give me news of it." I was anxious to redeem my character, and offered, if he would pour out the brandy, to run down and fill the bottle at the river. 
"'It would not waste the good spirit, either,' says he. "'It's been a good friend to you this night, or, in my poor opinion, you would still be cockin' on yon stone. And what's more,' says he, "'you may have observed, you that's a man of so much penetration, that Alan Breck Stewart was perhaps walking quicker than his ordinaire.' "'You!' I cried. "'You were running fit to burst!' <laughs> "'Was I so?' says he. "'Well, then, you may depend upon it. There was no time to be lost. And now here is enough said. Gang you to your sleep, lad, and I'll watch.' Accordingly I lay down to sleep. A little peaty earth had drifted in between the top of the two rocks, and some bracken grew there, to be a bed to me. The last thing I heard was still the crying of the eagles. I dare say it would be nine in the morning when I was roughly awakened and found Alan's hand pressed upon my mouth. Whisht! he whispered. You were snoring. Well, said I, surprised at his anxious and dark face, and why not? He peered over the edge of the rock and signed me to do the like. It was now high day, cloudless and very hot. The valley was as clear as in a picture. About half a mile up the water was a camp of redcoats. A big fire blazed in their midst, at which some were cooking, and nearby, on the top of a rock about as high as ours, there stood a sentry, with the sun sparkling on his arms. All the way down along the riverside were posted other sentries, here near together, there widely or scattered, some planted like the first, on places of command, some on the ground level, and marching and counter-marching so as to meet halfway. Higher up the glen, where the ground was more open, the chain of posts was continued by horse-soldiers, whom we could see in the distance riding to and fro. Lower down, the infantry continued, but as the stream was suddenly swelled by the confluence of a considerable burn, they were more widely set, and only watched the fords and stepping-stones. I took but one look at them, and ducked again into my place. It was strange indeed to see this valley, which had lain so solitary in the hour of dawn, bristling with arms and dotted with the redcoats and breeches. "'You see,' said Alan, "'this was what I was afraid of, Davy, that they would watch the burnside. They began to come in about two hours ago, and, man, you're a grand hand at the sleeping. We're in a narrow place. If they get up the sides of the hill they could easy spy us with a glass.' But if they'll only keep in the foot of the valley, we'll do yet. The posts are thinner down the water, and come night we'll try our hand at getting by them. "'And what are we to do till night?' I asked. "'Lie here,' says he, "'and bursle.' That one good Scotch word, bursle, was indeed the most of the story of the day that we had now to pass. You are to remember that we lay on the bare top of a rock like scones upon a girdle. The sun beat upon us cruelly, the rock grew so heated, a man could scarce endure the touch of it, and the little patch of earth and fern, which kept cooler, was only large enough for one at a time. We took turn about to lie on the naked rock, which was indeed like the position of that saint that was martyred on a gridiron, and it ran in my mind how strange it was, that in the same climate, and at only a few days' distance, I should have suffered so cruelly, first from cold upon my island, and now from heat upon this rock. All the while we had no water, only raw brandy for a drink, which was worse than nothing, but we kept the bottle as cool as we could, 
burying it in the earth, and got some relief by bathing our breasts and temples. The soldiers kept stirring all day in the bottom of the valley, now changing guard, now in patrolling parties hunting among the rocks. These lay around in so great a number that to look for men among them was like looking for a needle in a bottle of hay, and being so hopeless a task, it was gone about with the less care. Yet we could see the soldiers poke their bayonets among the heather, which sent a cold thrill into my vitals, and they would sometimes hang about our rock, so that we scarce dared to breathe. It was in this way that I first heard the right English speech, one fellow as he went by actually clapping his hand upon the sunny face of the rock on which we lay, and plucking it off again with an oath. "'I tell you it's aught," says he and I was amazed at the clipping tones and the odd sing-song in which he spoke, and no less at that strange trick of dropping out the letter H. To be sure, I had heard Ransom, but he had taken his ways from all sorts of people, and spoke so imperfectly at the best, that I set down the most of it to childishness. My surprise was all the greater to hear that manner of speaking in the mouth of a grown man, and indeed I have never grown used to it nor yet altogether with the English grammar, as perhaps a very critical eye might here and there spy out even in these memoirs. The tediousness and pain of these hours upon the rock grew only the greater as the day went on, the rock getting still the hotter and the sun fiercer. There were giddiness and sickness and sharp pangs like rheumatism to be supported. I minded then, and have often minded since, on the lines in our Scotch psalm, the moon by night thee shall not smite, nor yet the sun by day. And indeed it was only by God's blessing that we were neither of us sun-smitten. At last, about two, it was beyond men's bearing, and there was now temptation to resist, as well as pain to thole. For the sun being now got a little into the west, there came a patch of shade on the east side of our rock, which was the side sheltered from the soldiers. As well one death as another said Alan, and slipped over the edge, and dropped on the ground on the shadowy side. I followed him at once, and instantly fell all my length, so weak was I, and so giddy with that long exposure. Here then we lay for an hour or two, aching from head to foot, as weak as water, and lying quite naked to the eye of any soldier who should have strolled that way. None came, however, all passing by on the other side, so that our rock continued to be our shield, even in this new position. Presently we began again to get a little strength, and as the soldiers were now lying closer along the riverside, Alan proposed that we should try a start. I was by this time afraid of but one thing in the world, and that was to be set back upon the rock. Anything else was welcome to me. So we got ourselves at once in marching order, and began to slip from rock to rock one after the other now crawling flat on our bellies in the shade, now making a run for it, heart in mouth. The soldiers, having searched this side of the valley after a fashion, and being perhaps somewhat sleepy with the sultriness of the afternoon, had now laid by much of their vigilance, and stood dozing at their posts, or only kept a lookout along the banks of the river, so that in this way, keeping down the valley and at the same time towards the mountains, we drew steadily away from their neighbourhood but the business was the most wearing I have ever taken part in. A man had need of a hundred eyes in every part of him, 
to keep concealed in that uneven country and within cry of so many and scattered sentries. When we must pass an open place, quickness was not all, but a swift judgment not only of the lie of the whole country, but of the solidity of every stone on which we must set foot, for the afternoon was now fallen so breathless that the rolling of a pebble sounded abroad like a pistol-shot, and would start the echo calling among the hills and cliffs. By sundown we had made some distance, even by our slow rate of progress, though to be sure the sentry on the rock was still plainly in our view. But now we came on something that put all fears out of season, and that was a deep rushing burn that tore down in that part to join the Glen River. At the sight of this we cast ourselves on the ground and plunged head and shoulders in the water, and I cannot tell which was the more pleasant, the great shock as the cool stream went over us, or the greed with which we drank of it. We lay there, for the banks hid us, drank again and again, bathed our chests, let our wrists trail in the running water till they ached with the chill, and at last, being wonderfully renewed, we got out the meal-bag and made drummock in the iron pan. This, though it is but cold water mingled with oatmeal, yet makes a good enough dish for a hungry man, and where there are no means of making fire, or, as in our case, good reason for not making one, it is the chief standby of those who have taken to the heather. As soon as the shadow of the night had fallen we set forth again, at first with the same caution, but presently with more boldness standing our full height and stepping out at a good pace of walking. The way was very intricate, lying up the steep sides of mountains and along the brows of cliffs. Clouds had come in with the sunset, and the night was dark and cool, so that I walked without much fatigue, but in continual fear of falling and rolling down the mountains, and with no guess at our direction. The moon rose at last and found us still on the road. It was in its last quarter and was long beset with clouds, but after a while shone out and showed me many dark heads of mountains, and was reflected far underneath us on the narrow arm of a sea-lock. At this sight we both paused. I struck with wonder to find myself so high, and walking, as it seemed to me, upon clouds, Alan to make sure of his direction. Seemingly he was well pleased, and he must certainly have judged us out of earshot of all our enemies for throughout the rest of our night march he beguiled the way with whistling of many tunes, warlike, merry, plaintive, real tunes that made the foot go faster, tunes of my own south country that made me fain to be home from my adventures, and all these on the great, dark, desert mountains, making company upon the way. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.